the number one thing to remember for anybody listening is that when you get pregnant, you have no control. You're on the roller coaster and the roller coaster's brake is off and we're on for a ride. So all that I can do is I can make sure that there's like nails on the sides of the roller coaster to make sure that the track doesn't come unloose while you're riding it. The only things you can control are really how healthy is your soil before you get pregnant, through the pregnancy, into the postpartum, on a physical, etheric, astral, and spiritual, or eye level, consciousness level. And that's it. That's what you can control. Hey, party people. Welcome back to another Lifestylist Joyride. Show notes for this one can be found and enjoyed at lukestory.com slash Nathan. Our wonderful sponsors today are Cacao Bliss, Super Speciosa, Juve, and Magnesium Breakthrough. All incredible brands, bringing you the best of the best in all things wellness. This one here is episode 421, the holistic OBGYN on conscious birth and death practices and traditions with Dr. Nathan Riley. He's a medical doctor trained in OBGYN and palliative care. In this episode, Birth and Death, we talk about the role of medicine in society what it has been and what it could be, its beauty and limitations, and working inside the system versus outside of the system. I really dig Nathan because he thinks way outside of the box while not being so far out that your average person gets lost. So if you find yourself somewhere in the middle, this is the conversation for you. Here's a few of the topics we cover. We talk about the brand new film, The Business of Birth Control, which I highly recommend. We'll put that in the show notes. Science and the Industry of Mainstream OBGYNs how he works differently as a holistic OBGYN, birth is a natural process, the relationship between chakras and the organs, Rudolf Steiner's profound work on understanding human development, his work with Paul Cech and his family, how biogeometry can be used to optimize human health, Nathan's experience with death as a palliative caretaker, and finally, his vision for the future of birth. If by the end of the show you vibe with Nathan's approach to birth, you can find out more about working with him at lukestory.com slash belovedholistics, where you can use the code Luke100 for $100 off his services. That's lukestory.com slash belovedholistics. Okay, now that we've got that covered, let's go ahead and jump into this fascinating conversation with Dr. Nathan Riley. Here we are, Nathan. Here we are. It's good to see you again. So we were to together uh, last night. You were on a panel uh, after this book called The Business of Birth Control. So it's yeah. cool. I got to meet you there and I'd like to discuss that. Yeah. Maybe not as a jumping off point, but let's first give people a little bit of insight into you know, how you entered into uh, the allopathic medical system, You know, a, a synopsis yeah. of that, because yeah. there's so much more I want to talk to you yeah. about. And it's kind of a common theme here when I interview doctors. <laughs> it's the kind of doctors I interview are ones that are kind of out of the system or working on it or yeah. totally abandon it. But you know, your, your training, your schooling, kind of how you got into it, what caused you to become dismayed by it and kind right. of move into the holistic model that you're now currently so successful in. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's just great to meet you. And I know we have a ton in common and um, it's easy to talk to somebody like you because you you get a lot of this stuff, whereas a lot of my colleagues are still sort of like, what's this guy talking about? You know? So the elevator speech version of my story, just like with anybody, you answer more more questions on the test, right? You get to, you're rewarded with more school and um, eventually, you know, went through um, 
college and got into med school at Temple and went to Kaiser Permanente in Los Angeles, which means I was an OBGYN in Hollywood. And but not not serving the Hollywood stars, so to say, but the seven million people or whatever, they're stuffed into LA County. And um, and that was a great place to train. We got a lot of experience with surgery, a lot of uh, a lot of births. You know, I've attended over a thousand births now. Wow. And it was at least five hundred or so in residency, about three hundred of those were C sections. You know, you get very, very good at surgery. And I think what drew me into OBGYN, which is a specialty you pick after med school. So you I'm, get, just, I'm just going to back up here for one second because yeah. I know you know this story. Sure. So have you actually like taken a scalpel and sliced a woman's abdomen open and pulled a baby out? Yeah. Wow. Like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's the so, reason there's 40% of babies roughly in the United States are still born by C-section. If that doesn't sound dystopian to somebody. Oh my it should be. That's crazy. And the reason there are so many of them is because it's a self-fulfilling cycle. The more you do of it, the better you get at it. And then the more you can control over an uncontrollable natural process. Sometimes I have people on and yeah. like you said, we have so much in common. I'm like, oh, right, we're just going to have a chat. I'm like, wait, <laughs> you've done what? Yeah. To the average person, that's unfathomable. And that's the only, that's the major surgery we do in obstetrics. The obstetrics part of OBGYN, the gynecology part is hysterectomy, removal of ovaries, removal of tubes. There's a lot of cancer surgery. There's a lot of vaginal and vulvar surgery. There's cervical surgery. I mean, like the whole pelvis, the female pelvis is our domain. So 70% of your training is in OBGYN is, a, is surgery. So that's why when you put them in a space that doesn't need surgery, everything looks like a nail. And you've gotten really good with your hammer. So that's, the, that's why there's so much, many issues with the way that maternity care is practiced in the States. But speaking of maternity care, when I was in med school, you get to see all the different specialties. And I chose OBGYN because it was like, there's a mystique. There's a, a mystery here. And I don't have to have the answer to the test because there's no answer to how to have a baby. But then you get into the actual specialty training and you're expected to have the answer. What is the mechanism of control at every moment that shows that you know what you're doing? Versus if you're a real expert, do you have to ever do anything at all? You know when to intervene. And you can, you can have some restraint. That's where I started really becoming disillusioned with it. You know, where I was expected to intervene and put my hands where they don't belong whenever I didn't feel like any intervention was really necessary most of the time. And so fortunately, I had some midwives that I trained with. I went to some home births and residency and I was like, whoa, there's a different way to do this. And I lost my father in med school, got to see palliative care and hospice um, involved in his care and many other people's care. And I was like, whoa, the communication side, getting to know a person like this, getting to know what makes them tick, what's their greatest joy, their greatest triumph, their greatest loss, what have they grieved over in their life? What are they hoping for? That type of conversation belonged at birth, but we were only seeing it at end of life. So I figured, let me do a fellowship in hospice and palliative care and bring that into my care as an OBGYN. And that's where the magic started happening. So I went to San Diego, UC San Diego, for a year of fellowship training. Meaning, I am like as educated as you could possibly be in medicine. And I look backwards and I'm completely disillusioned with the whole process, which has been a really, really hard journey for me. I bet buyer's remorse. <clears throat> yeah, like, <laughs> man, I thought I wanted that Lambo and uh, it broke down the first year and taking it out of the lot, you know? So I got recruited out to Kentucky. I worked in the system for a while. I was working OBGYN shifts all night on the weekends, out of care in the hospital all day during the week. And um, we had our first baby on the way. And about a week or two before the baby came, I had my one last shift and at like 3 a.m. I did an emergency C-section. And the person who came in to help me was talking about like some sports game or whatever. And I was like, this is just, I'm just over this. Like, this is a sacred process. We're doing this emergency surgery, which isn't, this was a necessary one. 
But there's still a woman here who's awake during the birth of her baby and we're cutting into her belly, removing a baby, having to resuscitate the baby. And the whole time this person wants to talk about their kid's Little League game or something. And, you know, I'm not bashing the other doctors, but for, I realized like for me, I need to do this differently. So I said, it's my last day. I'm not, not, not doing this anymore. And then I went into hospice care and, you know, you want me to tell the story about how I lost the job? I love, want to get into I that. I love your two job losses because they're such huge wins in my from my perspective. <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, the, the first one was there was a disagreement between me and my employer because there was some not great practices happening, and I called them out on it. And we just determined that the Harley riding nose, you know, nose pierced, partial mohawk kind of looking dude just doesn't fit in here in rural Kentucky. You know, in the rural Midwest. And uh, so I went to hospice and then there, I was there for about a year and I lost my job when I took my mask down, taking care of a dying man. They used to say pneumonia is an old man's best friend. But in this case, he's been locked away for 18 months during this pandemic thing, has had no human love or compassion. Took my mask down, rubbed hand, rubs his hand, rubbed his hand and feet with lotion, like really connected with him heart to heart. We got close enough that you can feel one another, that heart math. I mean, it's real. And this guy hadn't seen a face, let alone been touched for 18 months. I did that and lost my job because I took my mask down. And I should be thanking them because it was the universal nudge I needed to really do the, the type of work that I want to do, which is what I'm doing now. Wow. Yeah. Um, during your time in hospice, does this mean, <laughs> forgive me for being so naive. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I kind of know the answer, but I just want to hear it to get the yeah. gravity of it. So have you sat with multiple people as they left their body? Have you been Yeah, more, more than I count. I, what I'd say is I've taken care of a, a thousand births and a thousand deaths. Like, I, I don't know when you keep counting or like what the, you know, the reason for that would be. But you sit with it enough. And if you're present there with those two processes, you, it starts to change you and starts to give you some perspective about the greater thing. You know, and I'm not talking about God or what our religious leaders say or our politicians say. I'm talking about like that deep resonance that we have with ourselves with other people, with nature, with the cosmos. And that obviously is something that you can't see. Once you see behind the curtain, you can't unsee it. And when you can really appreciate some of that subtle energetic stuff that's happening, it opens up this world of possibilities as to how we can care for one another. Wow. Yeah. Energetically, in terms of the etheric realm in a space when uh, life is coming versus going, is there a difference? Let me answer that question with another question. Is birth the beginning or is death the beginning? We usually think, I, people say, I'm the bookend doctor, beginning and end. But I actually like to get people to think of it the other way around. What if birth is the ending and death is the beginning? And when you can really flip that on its head, it doesn't matter the answer to your question. And I'm not saying that it's a bad question. It's actually the question that we should all be asking. Because what we think is like, oh, this person gets older, then they're not useful. They're not producing anymore. So we put them away in a nursing facility to die alone where a doctor's wearing a mask and, and not able to love them appropriately. But if we can actually reverse that and flip that paradigm on its head and think about what is to come after death and what came before birth, then we start to really create a, an interesting story as opposed to this you know, medical procedure with birth or the failure of modern medicine with death, which not, and neither of those things are true. I asked that question in part because I've not been present for a birth other than my own, yeah. <laughs> you know, which I don't yeah. remember. I have a sense of what it was like, um, largely less than positive. But I have been present at the death of an animal, like a big mammal at my hand. And there was something 
and I've talked about it a bunch of times in this podcast, so forgive me, listeners, for the broken record, but it was, it was such a profound experience in my life to just witness life leaving the body of yeah. a being, a pretty good-sized being, you know? And um, there was this... <laughs> it's kind of like in Stranger Things when the fog comes, you know? They were just... Shit got weird yeah. for about 10 minutes there. Yeah. And it was so emotionally impactful it was mm. so powerful. And it wasn't a guilt or a sadness about what had just happened. You know, oh, something's dying. It wasn't that. There was no intellectual process or belief around it or judgment around it. It was purely energetic. Yeah. And it was like, I'm going to get goosebumps mm. now. It mm. was goosebumps of just like, holy shit, there is some stuff moving right now. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the, I think the best way I can contextualize it was just, you're at the portal of the unseen and the seen, and there's a shift happening there. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is, oh yeah, it's just wild, and and that really was one of the contributing factors to like give me this somewhat urgent desire to have a kid and to actually learn about birth. And I've had so many people on the podcast yeah. and just yeah. exploring it as a spiritual phenomenon, right? That I just want more of because I just want more of everything that consciousness has to offer in and outside of this realm. Yeah. So that was the basis yeah. of my question because when that happened, I, I had this innate sense that this is the same energy that's present when a, when a birth takes place. Exactly right. Yeah. So there, I see them as two sides of the same coin. That's, that's, and and I, I really appreciate you sharing that story because at that time you were paying attention, you were present with the process. And if you think about how a person dies in the hospital or gives birth in the hospital, there's all this, there's this cacophony of stuff happening. Everybody's moving around, you know? They're all trying to do, they're, they're do-gooders. They're trying to fix this and fix that as opposed to just pausing and, and, and allowing themselves to, be, to soak in the majesty of this transformation of spirit that's taking place, whether it's at birth or death. So one story I do like to share, share is there was one shift when I was a resident where a woman came in and she was in preterm labor. So she's like 32 weeks. That's way before her due date or her guest date, as I call it, because we have no idea when the baby's coming, but I digress. At 32 weeks, her waters had opened up and, and she was, was there and like, I don't want this baby to come at home. 32 weeks is really young. This baby's probably going to need, you know, some higher level NICU support. So she was there for about a week. And eventually we tried to kind of, you can treat with antibiotics and things like that to try to stop the probably an insidious infection that caused the waters to open so early, but her baby came anyways. And I was in there and I was the chief residence. I was like the main guy in charge, apart from the attendings who were kind of in the other room. And I was kind of taking care of the mom after the baby came out. The baby's on the warmer with the whole respiratory therapy team and everything. Because it's a new, it's a preemie. It's a really, really small baby. And they couldn't get the baby to breathe. The baby wasn't taking a breath. So they tried to put like a, a tube in to intubate the baby. Couldn't get a tube in. They called in all these other people. And eventually they said, we got to go to the operating room. Something's up here. We don't see vocal cords. There's, there's a blockage, something's there. So this woman just gave birth eight weeks before she hoped to. The baby's whisked to the operating room down the hall. They brought every surgical team up there to take a look at this. The baby was missing about four centimeters of trachea, which connects your upper airway to your lungs, so the main bronchi, and that's not reparable. So there's no solution. This baby's going to die. We could put a bag in there, and they did, and they just were pumping air into the lungs, but there's, this, there's no way of managing this long-term. We can't make a fake trachea at this point in medical sciences. So we're in there. The, the woman just says, you know, I think I just want to hold her. And so they give her the baby. 
And she's holding this baby, and the baby eventually just takes her final breaths. And I have two little girls, so I get a little bit choked up when I talk about this one. But we're in there with her, and you know, there's the surgical staff, there's the anesthesia there, there's all these other people that are in there. And there's this noise, this clamoring of activity, clacking away on keyboards, documenting things, adjusting blood pressure cuffs, the blankets, until the are we allowed to cuss on your podcast? I can't remember. Oh, freely. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've tried to curb myself a little <laughs> bit at the request of some of the parents that listen, but please be I think be it's you. important. Wait, let's, what she said was, can you guys just leave us the fuck alone in a very passionate way? Because she is holding her baby for the final moments of her life. And there's, you could hear a pin drop at that point because everybody at that moment started paying attention, mm. which is what you did with that yeah. animal. And when you pay attention, you watch this little baby expire. It puts things into, and I say expire, I shouldn't even use that word. The baby died. The baby stepped through the portal, was in and out in the same hour. So we got to see birth and death at the same, on the same shift, in the same hour. And I'm tr- I try to not give a moral of the story, but something that could be taken from that, that I bring into my practice is that if we can stop and pay attention, Everything that we need to do for the person is going to be revealed to us. But instead, we get stuck in this protocolized way of doing things, missing out on the fact that this is a person with her person, husband and wife, going through probably the most traumatizing, challenging thing that they're ever going to have to go through. And they're probably still working on the reality of what happened that day. But when we get so caught up in the charting, in the instruments, in the the to-do list, the checklist, sometimes that's helpful. Right now, we just need to be present and be compassionate human beings. And within the system, you're not generally incentivized to do that. And to answer your question about the energetics, I have had a person die and then I've, had, I've attended a baby on the same shift. Not even that story I was talking about. One was a hospice patient and I had to rush to the hospital to go out to my OB shift. I arrived there just in time to, quote, deliver the baby. Just language that we shouldn't be using because I didn't do anything. I was just there and I caught the baby. And you have to wonder, like, was one coming in and one going out? I mean, into this earth school? I mean, why not? Why can't we really start to conjecture about the, the realities of, what hap- of what's happening during these, these true rites of passage. There's very few of those in our life. But there's a transformation of spirit at birth and at death. And at birth, it's for the, the, the dad, the mom, and the baby. And the unit of the partnership changes. There's this entire transformation. But because we're so distracted with the clean up everything and wrap the baby up and give the baby shots moments into life and goop in the eyes and everything, we get so focused on the checklist that we forget that this is something that should be held. And we should hold space for this. There is a beautiful perspective and and, and perhaps life-altering experience here. But we're so distracted by everything else that we forget to pay attention. And that presence is what's lacking. It's not time. It's not safety measures. It's not protocols. What we're lacking in modern medicine is presence. And that's what I get to do every day now, now that I've stepped away from Congratulations that. Congratulations on being fired. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should be sending them bouquets and, what and stuff. what a great reason, too. I mean, your humanity had the opportunity to supersede norms. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because oftentimes norms have nothing to do with humanity. Maybe even the majority of time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. That's that's why I love breaking norms on on this show. It's yeah. one of the most fun things. Is yeah. sometimes talking about those edgy, uncomfortable things. Which for me, historically, the idea of having a kid and birth is right. just like, oh, I'm not even that. That's nowhere even near my experience because I had such a limited right. Um, experience right. of life in many ways. Yeah. And with the death, it's like, oh my God, to, mm. to face that, to face one's own mortality 
you know, this is the reality and there's so much dysfunction in the way we operate as citizens of humanity because those two things are becoming increasingly compartmentalized, especially right. death. Right. I mean, right? It's like... Totally. It, it, totally. In American Western culture, I mean, at least, right? I'm sure there are pockets of people around the world who perhaps still embrace and celebrate death in, in different ways. But our version of it is like what we see in the movies and on TV and the same with birth. It's everything's a medical emergency. Everything's stressful. Presence. It's like, no, the last thing you want to do is be present because you're for most people hitting your edge of comfort and your yeah. very the, the very fabric of your reality is being shaken so dramatically. Right. That right. like of course we just lazily and out of our fear don't want to look at these things or talk about these things or God forbid have someone you know that you care about pass away and you leave their body in the house for three days yeah. as is common in some cultures, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like I when I think about doing that, it's like, oh hell no. <laughs> <laughs> but yet what if I were to do that with with a high degree of presence? With presence, almost anything is doable. That's what I found in some very challenging times in my life when I've had the opportunity to not run and just be there for it, come what may. Yeah. That's that's where the magic happens. I totally, I totally agree. And, and, and I also want to reflect on the discomfort that we all have with dying. We are so averse to the idea that we're not going to be here forever, that we push that conversation off forever until we do die. And then we're still, we've, we've prepared ahead of time to not become worm food. Heaven forbid I bury you in the ground, in the worms, in the, the mycorrhizae grow around you and you become reconsumed by Gaia and you're re- imagined as a tree and all these other things, your molecules are broken down and repurposed to make this world beautiful. Instead of that being the reality, which it actually is, we cover ourselves in a lead-lined casket, in a concrete tomb. We embalm ourselves so that somebody can remember what we looked like 20 years ago, instead of embracing the privilege that it is to die. And and I'm not trying to diminish the reality that you have to say goodbye to people and they have to say goodbye to you. What I am saying is that you don't get a vote. When you're born, you don't get a vote as to whether or not you die. You only get a vote as to what your time looks like from now until then and how you die. And if you're going to die in the hospital, the vast majority of people in the hospital would say, you can't die unless we've tried absolutely everything. Even if it costs us $20 million to get every last eek out of that essay node in your heart. Once that fails, then we can say, okay, they're dead as opposed to embracing the opportunity to die one day. And if there's an opportunity, if there's a privilege of death in the future, and it's absolutely coming in the future, then why not live right now? And it sounds so cliche, and everybody talks about this stuff, but nobody actually lives it. But presence is actually our greatest currency. It's not time. It's not material stuff you can't take with you to the grave. It's the presence you have with another person, whether it's your children, your parents, your partner, your friends, your community. And that's, that's something that I have the, the, the privilege of doing now, I, I, I suppose, now that I'm not confined to the protocols and the procedures of, of a system that won't let a person die until we've, quote, tried everything. God, if I think about how I want to go out in a hospital bed would be <laughs> probably the number one worst yeah. way. Apart yeah. from obvious violent death of being murdered or chopped in half <laughs> by a car or something, right? But I mean, like if you're just yeah. getting old and oldness has taken over 
just being hauled off to the hospital yeah. and hearing all that beeping and all the mm. EMF and blue light and gross food and water. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> yeah, right. antithetical to and antithetical to how I would want to have my last, you know, breaths of a human experience. There's a really cool TED talk that you would love. I think the 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 speaker's name is Yoko Sen. And the name of the TED talk is um it's something related to what would you want your final sounds to be? Oh, wow. And she talks about the sounds, this, this again, a cacophony of noise and the constant interruptions. And this applies to birth too. So you could replace birth and death here. When you're having a baby or when you're dying, what do you want the sounds of, in the room to be? Do you want it to be the beeping, the bright lights, all this EMF circulating around you, the bright all overhead lights turning on and off all night, all Flickering. day, sticking with needles, taking blood work at 3 a.m. for no reason because you're dying. Who cares about the blood work? Who cares about all that other stuff? Why don't we embrace this as a sacred transformation of spirit rather than the failure of our medical sciences? But when she, she's a musical composer, so she's like, what if instead of all these hospital sounds and the right angles of our ceiling tiles and all of that, what if we actually, what if it sounded like this? And then she plays some of her compositions and it's like, she's already set you there. And then you can ease into that. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it because I saw her speak at another conference and I was like, this is where we need to be heading as a society. Not an over-reliance more on medical procedures, but an embracing of what the experience is. And that experience is a matter of quality, not quantity. But you can't measure quality. You can't measure joy or love. You can't measure consciousness. I can't measure Luke. But Luke, you have a an essence to you. So if I can't measure it, the medical system doesn't consider it important. It important, And this is especially relevant in birth. We don't consider the experience of a woman important. But when a person goes through even the most unmedicated, undisturbed birth in the hospital, something maybe doesn't feel right. I don't know. Could it be the constant interruptions, the constant distraction of looking inward as you're going through this incredible transformation of spirit? we were chatting about this a bit earlier in regard to EMF. It's that physics, physics and quantum physics, you know, <laughs> right. and both, both are right. real and both are valid, but only physics, physics is quantifiable. Right. Right. And so we tend to just lean into that so much. I think that's because we, we like certainty and there's certainty in physics and in quantum physics as real, but because it has a different, type of certainty which comes more from within within the heart and yeah. one's intuition um, but it also leaves that realm open for um in inauthenticity yeah. right because yeah. well, anything can be like in another realm like you can just make up stories of oh right now i'm seeing four beans behind you nathan and like could i prove that no it's in the quantum realm right you know right. so it's like it's funny like I, when I it's like one of god's tricks you know i wish it wasn't like that like yeah. god show him your stuff <laughs> don't keep it all pre-matter you know we just get to we just get oh there's a book, you know okay it's real yeah. it's here yeah. and meanwhile yeah. you know as anyone who's taken ayahuasca or something or ayahuasca has taken them rather, um, mm. you know within 45 minutes that this dimension of what we consider provable and real and measurable right. is just, just a minute part of the fabric of consciousness. That's right, yeah. 
When I started this podcast in 2016, I quickly realized that without sponsors, it was going to be very difficult to keep up with the show. However, when I realized that, I made a promise to myself and to the audience that I would always maintain integrity and never promote any products that I didn't personally use or truly believe in. And I'm super stoked to announce an amazing new product today called Magnesium Breakthrough which you can find at magnesiumbreakthrough.com. Magnesium is the body's master mineral. It's so powerful, it's responsible for over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, and even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. But there's two big problems here. Magnesium has been largely missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, when in reality there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. Now, if you take this latter fact into consideration, it's just not logical to conclude that 99% of the population is likely deficient in two or more essential forms of magnesium. It just doesn't make sense. The good news is, is that when you do get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded from your brain to your sleep, pain and inflammation, it all improves and fast. That's why I'm so pumped that my buddies over at Bioptimizers, makers of the industry-leading digestive supplements, have just created Magnesium Breakthrough. Their research team recently formulated what I believe is the ultimate magnesium supplement and easily the best one I've ever seen or experienced with all seven forms of this mineral. And I've taken every magnesium on the market that I've ever heard of, straight up. I mean, I'm obsessed with magnesium, especially due to EMF, which is an entirely different conversation. Now, these guys even include trace elements of something called monoatomic magnesium, which helps make all of the other forms more bioavailable. So this is by far the most complete magnesium product ever created. And until or unless someone comes out with a better one, I highly recommend that you give this one a try. Bioptimizers calls this product Magnesium Breakthrough, and they're running a special promotion for you, the listener, right now at magbreakthrough.com slash Luke. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com forward slash L-U-K-E, magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash Luke. You can get an additional 10% off the normal package price with the coupon code LUKE10. And here's what's up. The guys that make this product are so brazenly confident that you're going to like it that they will give all your money back if you don't. So with this one simple action, you can reverse magnesium deficiency in all its forms and upgrade the performance of your entire body, including how you look and feel in every possible way. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash Luke, enter the code Luke10 to save 10% off. So last night we met at this film, uh, I would like to cover this topic, the business of uh, birth control. Yeah. And I've seen their, the other ones, the business of birth or whatever. It's the kind of being a, born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, business of being born, yeah. Ricky Lake's production and mm-hmm. stuff. And so I've watched bits and pieces of those and kind of went in going like, well, I already know all this, but I'm just going to go and support and maybe I'll learn something, you know? 10 minutes into this thing, I'm like, they're doing what? <laughs> this is genocide, you know? I'm like just gripping my seat. I had no idea all these other oral contraceptives were yeah. even out. Yeah. This is not something in my realm that yeah, women yeah. would typically do at this stage. Uh, but not only that, like, oh, I'm sure there's side effects and they jack up your hormones. I mean, there's people dying, like, boom. 
dead from taking birth control and all of these other things. And I'm just going like, I want to quit everything and just support this film. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, yeah. ah, there's a fire, you know? Hello. Yeah. Right. Great film. Highly recommend it. I'll put it in the show notes, which you can find at lukestory.com slash Nathan. And we'll find that, that uh, TED Talk that you mentioned. We'll oh, put yeah. that in the show yeah. notes too. So that's lukestory.com slash Nathan. So I'm, you know, walking out of that theater, just going like, wow, it's unfortunately way worse than I imagined just on this niche topic of birth control. And there was a lot of other content around just women's reproductive health and yeah. reimagining yeah. that, which was really cool. But for those that haven't seen the film yet, like what, what's happening with this birth control, the oral contraceptive specifically, and and then another interesting piece that was covered in the panel in which you participated was the IUDs, the, mm. the non-hormonal mm. and the copper ones. And something occurred to me with the copper ones. I was like, duh, you're, you have an EMF antenna inside You've got an you. antenna inside <laughs> your womb yeah, of all you, places. You have like a turned off cell phone inside yeah. you. It's yeah. just like, uh, but anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a topic near and dear to me because I trained as an OBGYN. And when you train as an OBGYN, a person comes into the clinic, especially at, at Kaiser, where you're seeing 10 people, five back-to-back before lunch, five back-to-back after lunch, sometimes up to 15 people a day. And they come to you with many issues that women experience, painful periods, they get heavy periods, they get abnormal or unpredictable periods. The solution to all those is generally hormonal contraception, right? So, oh. Don't worry about that nuisance, that bleed you have every month. Just take this pill or just get this IUD. It'll thin you out. You won't even have any periods anymore. Isn't that great? The problem with that is twofold. Number one, I think, and I mentioned this last night on the panel, but it disconnects women from the natural rhythm and flow of nature. So we've got the tides. We've got the lunar cycles. We've got the seasons, you know, and, and women are gifted with 13 cycles per year. And each of those cycles is a reset and has its phases where you're going through the winter, through the spring, the summer, the fall, every single moon. And that's how nature sort of intended it. But if you disconnect somebody from that, they become even further removed from their natural rhythms, not, not to mention circadian rhythms. And so that's the first issue. There's, there's three issues here. The second issue is that by me putting a Band-Aid on your splinter, the splinter's still there. Or maybe some uh, topical lidocaine or something. It doesn't hurt anymore, but the splinter's still there. So if I am just going to give you a birth control pill that, that fixes the issue you're presenting with, I'm not investigating anything upstream, any of the functional medicine stuff. We have to consider hypothalamus, pituitary, thyroid, adrenals, ovaries, you name it, the gut. They're all in this delicate orchestration, and we haven't investigated the up- upstream cause. So you're, at, you're 15, you're, you're a young girl, You've got painful periods. Just take this pill. You won't even have any periods anymore. Isn't that great? Fine. For some people, that might be okay. The problem is that 10 years later, when you're 25 and you come off of birth control, we've never even investigated what's going on with your periods. It could have just been that your body wasn't fully in its pulsatile, cyclical pattern yet, but we don't know because we just squelched it out right from the beginning. The third issue, so we have an underlying health issue, perhaps, that we never investigated. We just put a Band-Aid on, the, on the, the leak. The third issue is that these are toxic synthetic endocrine disruptors, right? Especially the pill goes into the gut. It messes up your mi- gut microbiome. Your gut microbiome interfaces with gut-associated lymphatic tissue. We've got a predominance of serotonin receptors, not in the central nervous system, but elsewhere in the body, specifically the gut. of your immune system lives in the gut, in that that gut-associated lymphatic tissue. 
we get immune dysregulation. We have an upregulation of binding proteins from the liver, which drops all of your other endocrine hormones down, like your thyroid hormone, namely. So you end up with thyroid dysfunction. And so you're not just not fixing the underlying issue. You're actually making your body sicker by being on these medications. And you're messing with your gut, which has comes with nutrient deficiencies and mood disorders, you know, based on what I mentioned about serotonin and dopamine. And so between just those three things, we're, we're already looking at a, quite a pickle whenever it's something like 17% of, of American women of reproductive age are being prescribed these every year. That's a pretty big number. So the fourth thing, which was really emphasized in the film, is that there are downsides that we're not counseling our, our, our patients on because they're just low risk. Hey, it's a low risk of blood clot, but hey, the good news is, Luke, you don't get a period anymore. So we're overemphasizing the benefits, and I am all for a woman's autonomy, 100%. If you're willing to accept those risks, as I've counseled you on risks, benefits, alternatives to this, if that's the risk you want to take, it's fine. It's a still a low absolute risk. But if you have that, that, that stroke or that pulmonary embolism, and I didn't counsel you on it, then shame on me. And that's what I think is actually a big part of what the film illuminated. It's not that it's not that women shouldn't have the right to choose whatever contraceptive method they want. I'm all for that, if you understand all those risks that I mentioned. Especially that fine print and that giant <laughs> Seda Dafty. She's a classic. Say, yeah. One of the, he's referring to, uh, and I really encourage you guys to watch the film, the, the Business of Birth Control. But yeah, then sadly, there were, I guess, four sets of parents who had yeah. lost their, their daughters as a direct result of oral contraceptives. Right. And they're opening up one of the packages to find you know, the fine print in there <laughs> yeah. of like may cause this or that. And so, yeah, it was really, I thought pretty smart the way the parents were now sort of unifying was not to try to get money out of these companies and they have big cash reserves for lawsuits, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, 20 billion, I think was that big sell yeah. that they mentioned. That's a lot of money. <laughs> but more so they're like, when you buy a pack of cigarettes, it says this might kill you. Like they want black label yeah, you know, right. Warning, warning, dire warning uh, on the packaging, which is a, I'm sure not. I mean, I don't think it's happened, so I'm sure it's exceedingly difficult to facilitate that yeah. through the FDA and all the corrupt shit that's going on between them and Big Daddy Pharma. But even that would think of how many lives would be saved if a woman's like, I don't know, like maybe my acne is not so bad. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Or let me find out what's going on <laughs> yeah. that's actually right. causing it. Right. right. So yeah, right. I thought. I thought that was really smart in the film that they're like, hey, how about this as a first step? Yeah. Because you're not going to have the lobbying power to just make all those drugs illegal and That's have right. them taken off the market. That's it's right. not going to happen. Right. And, and maybe we also shouldn't have to take all those drugs off the market. There is still good reason to have those things. The other issue, though, is that we haven't been teaching young women about fertility awareness and about how your body works. So they don't even, they're not even empowered with a knowledge of how could my body work? Do I know that I can only get pregnant six days out of the cycle? Or do I have to worry about a penis coming near me and I get pregnant? Which is what I thought when I was a young kid, you uh, know? I thought this until a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like embarrassed to say. But we started, you know, looking at the prospect of having a kid. Well, how does it work? And yeah. I mean, this is embarrassing kind of, but I'm just going to be real. Um, I literally thought you just have sex anytime and you pretty much just automatically get pregnant. Right. Not only was there... I did. I wasn't aware that there's this period of ovulation wherein yeah. it can actually happen those short few days. But I didn't even know you had to like keep trying or anything. I thought like the minute you don't use protection, like that one time you're pregnant. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, am I 15? Like, how did I? How am I so uneducated about yeah, this? So, yeah. um, 
but you know, but you're not alone, Luke. Like this is a yeah, and widespread the fact that, issue. The fact yeah. that most women, you know, and in the yeah. film too, they're like, well, what's another action step? If you're a mother, like talk to your daughters, right? right. This, how right. this information right. is passed on. So yeah, I, I think that's a really Im- important piece of it. And, and also for us men to understand too. Totally. And I did a podcast recently um, with Kayla Osterhoff. She was talking about these different cycles that the women go through and and it was so immensely valuable to me as someone with a mother, employees, wife, women in my life that I deeply love. I was like, oh, noted. Yeah. This is what this is how I can best serve them at this time and that time. And whether or not they even know that, right. I can start to actually tune into those cycles to some degree. Yeah. Um, you know, however inaccurate that might be. I get a sense of like, oh, this thing happened. She's probably gonna be feeling like this. And yeah, after the course of some time, it becomes more real and yeah. um and quantifiable. So yeah, I think that was really interesting. But one thing she also pointed out is that men, we're on circadian 24-hour cycle. Like we have a new thing every day. We're, we're basically the same every day, you know? Yeah. For the, comparatively at least. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like what an opportunity to be patient with the women in our lives and understand that they're going to be interested in this at this time and not this and great right. at this thing at this time and not right. great, you know? Right. It's like... My moods just throughout one day kind of dictate that. But the minute I go to sleep and wake up the next day, it's a whole new thing. And I'm just, I just start over. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's such a different way of um, acknowledging those beautiful differences. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, Peyton um, Callahan, one of the, the women who hosted, she's local here in, in Austin, she put together a, a little ebook for fathers to start, you know, becoming involved in this conversation. And I do think that that was one thing I, would have loved to see at a screening, more of these screenings of films like The Business of Birth Control, is that it's equally a part of our, I don't want to say re-education because we were never educated on it from the beginning. We were just taught, don't have sex or you're going to have a baby and you won't be prepared to have a baby until you're financially sound or whatever. And, um, and even you know, my wife and I having kids, I was like, man, I learned about, I'm an OBGYN and I still had to go and kind of review what fertility awareness methods really looked like. Cervical mucus is not something I learned about in residency. So even for many doctors, the fertility awareness process, which is a pretty ancient technology, it's really just knowing your body and how you correspond with the rhythm of nature. That is something that we can all start to educate our kids about, boys and girls, at a very young age. So there are people like Peyton and Kim Vanderbeek was also hosting the event. That's a big part of the message that I, I think we also need to push through to anybody listening, is that it's on all of us to start understanding this a little bit better. And you know, there not everybody wants to be checking their cervical mucus every day. I get that. It's not for everybody, but there are options for you. The problem is that we haven't even presented that as an option because, oh, you don't want to do that. That doesn't work. If, it, if it's done pr- appropriately, you can know with 99.9% certainty when to have sex if you want to have a baby and when not to have sex if you don't want a baby. And, um, and I, th- I think that that's the part of the conversation that this film, I think, really drove home as well is that this education process is on all of us of all ages, um, especially if we have kids, to start inspiring them to think differently about this, not just block the sperm and the egg from meeting, but let's <laughs> get to know our bodies a little bit better, you know? And, totally. and we are not autom- we're not automobiles. You know, we are a part of nature. We have a cycle. We just have to pay attention. Again, back to being present. Be present with self as well. And that's sorely lacking, I think, in how we are educating kids. And that's a that's a different rabbit hole. We won't even go oh, down. That's great. We, we can go down that too. Yeah. Um, define science as a belief system versus 
a practical, evolving, emerging <laughs> phenomenon? Well, I think you, I think you, you probably took the words from my from my heart there. Well, elaborate on that as as someone who came out of the scientism world yeah, and is now like yeah. taking some great knowledge from that. Like obviously the stuff you learned in school and in sure. practice is part of who you are and what you do now. But as someone who sort of merged out of that and from my perspective, elevated their overall awareness and effectiveness in yeah. what you do. Well, it's funny how doctors are trained because I, I think I maybe mentioned this to you yesterday, but we're, we're basically rewarded with getting more questions right on the test based on the examiner's preference for how you answer the question, right? And if you make it to Harvard Medical School or whatever big university for whatever profession, it's because you've done a better job at that, staying in between the lines than somebody else. Starting in middle school, you're rewarded with more school. So that's a very left-brain thinking process. So the, to answer your question directly, science is the exploration of truth, period. It's not a belief system. It's not a religion. It is not a dictate from somebody above. It is a curiosity. It's a process of exploring those unknown questions. That's what it always used to be. And then it started becoming a surrogate for policies and procedures given to us by either religious, political, or mom and dad leaders, right? And that's, that's problematic for me because in order to explore truth, we have to be able to ask hard questions. And then we have to be able to sit with the results, whether it supports our hypothesis or not. That is the scientific process. And have the patience for the tedium of nuance. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the uncertainty right. of nuance. Nuance is sexy. Like it's fun to not have the answer. For some of us. <laughs> it seems like a lot of people don't feel that way, unfortunately. I, yeah. And so if you're in the the scientific community, which is a misnomer now, you were rewarded as a doctor by doing the things that the hospital policies and procedures or your American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists says to do or your licensing board says to do. But if that's maybe not the right thing for this particular person, given their particular story in this particular context, then why would I put them into that box? Instead, I need to scratch my head, sit with myself for a while and really be thoughtful about it and then create and then come up with a hypothesis. And then we try something new to help you but you're not rewarded for doing that. There's really no incentive structure to do that. And it never has been. In fact, that process that I described selects for people who don't want to ask questions. They're just good at studying the book and giving the answer. And that, again, is a very left brain thinking you know, quality versus somebody who's a little bit more creative and wanting to say like, well, what about this? What about, what is, what if we did it this way? What, what result would we get then? You know, could we actually do this better if we put these things backwards and flip them around? You know, that's what science used to be. But instead, we've fallen into a guidelines and procedures manual that is very automated. It's very, you know, um, robotic and very sterile in a way, such, such that even when we have things like this COVID thing that broke out, asking a question was actually grounds for you losing your license, you being deplatformed. And to be very specific about that, even in our counseling, when I said risks, benefits, alternatives, that's a big part of our job. If I can't give you the risks of birth control because it's going to make you hesitant about taking birth control and that's grounds for me losing my license, we're, we've hit a problem. We've, hit a, we've, hit, we've run into a belief system mm -hmm. that is not scientific at all. And that's exactly what was happening with people who are making others, quote, vaccine hesitant by giving risks of this new device. And I have to say, before this whole COVID thing, I was like, okay, with vaccines, like, yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, it's, it's helped polio. So we don't see people with polio and whatnot running around. But for this, this was an un, 
untested technology. It was we had no safety data, we had no efficacy data, and they were recommending it to pregnant women as soon as it was available. And I put on the brakes and I was like, absolutely not. We're not doing this. We've been shaming women for drinking wine and having sex in pregnancy for years. <laughs> right. And now we're going to inject a new See experimental a device. A cigarette. Like, Satan. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I was like, oh, I know. Right. A couple shots. Big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Gates knows best. He's a healthcare provider, you know? So, yeah. um, so anyways, when you start asking He's questions... He's an amazing farmer, though. Let's give him that. I mean, you know... If you own that much land, you must be a really good farmer, I'm guessing. All biodynamic. They're doing all the preparations. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So my views on, on science is that people mistake science for directives. And that's not what science ever was about. You know, it was asking the big questions and being prepared to be wrong. And as a doctor, admitting that you don't know or admitting that I did something wrong is grounds for you being, you know, the laughing stock of the whole hospital or your whole medical school class. So you wow. fake it until you make it. Could it not be that the, the science stumbling block here could not be um, perhaps better summed up by saying uh, the science is settled? Yeah. That one's always irked me because it immediately negates that it's science to begin That's with. That's antithetical to science. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah in, science inherently, yeah. Can never, and true science can never and will never be settled. That's what science is, right. is being unsettled. Right. And digging and digging and digging to find truth. Right. You know? I mean, I guess there is, I, I would say, an absolute truth, but perhaps not, not in the realm of the physical so much. Yeah. You know? I think that's probably why a lot of our early scientists, the tinkerers, the Edisons, the, you know, these... Um, Da Vinci's, they Tesla. were like, I mean, they were, they're, they're doing, they've got their hands in so many different spaces. They're creatives, they're artists, they're, they're thoughtful about bigger questions and micro questions. They can go real deep or real big. They were the Renaissance men and women. Uh, Hildegard von Bingen comes to mind, this like sixth century nun who was also like a brilliant chemist and was a composer and did all these other things figuring out how does different sound help with facilitate healing in her patients. And this is like sixth century stuff with a harp or something, you know? Wow. So, and, or chanting, like Gregorian chanting, how does that facilitate healing? I mean, like asking these really cool questions while also mixing herbs up and trying to experiment with this and that, that is a scientist. And I think that the reason that we had such great breakthroughs in science, even just a couple hundred years ago, is because you were allowed to be thoughtful and curious and creative. and fail a hundred times before you get that, that one thing that works. Nowadays, if you don't do what is told to you to be done as a doctor or a, a consumer of medicine, you now are the black sheep. And that is antithetical to the sci this, this belief system, the scientism that you described. And so fortunately, I don't have any of those rules that govern how I do things, which allows me to be very creative and to use some of these other technologies I've been talking about. That's not paid for by insurance because I don't work with insurance. <laughs> yeah. I just go straight to the person who needs me and I can say, hey, I've been really, really thoughtful about this, probably more so than your doctor. I don't say that, but yeah. I mean, I know I am yeah. because I don't have somebody telling me that, hey, if you do it this way or if you, if you break outside the lines, you're going to lose your job. So those golden handcuffs are pretty tough on a lot of docs and nurses and nurse practitioners out there. I can imagine. Yeah. And the thing I always think about, because I, I rag on allopathic medicine quite a bit. Um, but you think about you're saddled with 400 grand in debt from medical school. Yeah. Right? Like you don't have time to be thoughtful. You have to build a practice or book more hours or however it works. Right, right. Because you got that on your ass for right. however many years, right? right? And it's, it's not like even just the way the whole system is set up for how much time you get on a 
average medical visit, right? It's just one after another, 15 patients a day as you're yeah. talking about earlier. Yeah. So it's just the whole thing is kind of just so systemically broken, Yeah, you know, yeah. based on that reductionist kind of scientific pseudoscience way of thinking, right? This episode is brought to you by Danette May and Mindful Health, featuring Danette May's top superfood product from her Earth Echo Foods line, Cacao Bliss. To me, nothing feels better than being able to enjoy rich, smooth, creamy chocolate and knowing I'm doing something good for my body. And for me, it not only tastes good, but it satisfies my cravings for sweets and gives me something mega nutritious to add to my herbal elixirs and smoothies. I make a bunch of crazy concoctions with my cacao bliss, but you should know you can just add it to hot or cold water and it packs a powerful punch all by itself. It's made with ceremonial grade, sun-dried, 100% organic cacao beans, turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend of chocolatey goodness. It not only tastes like a dessert, but it's also awesome for removing your food cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing inflammation. For the past eight years, Earth Echo has been a leader in the superfoods market and is proud to have served millions of customers worldwide, including yours truly. What's even better is that right now they're offering up to 15% off when you use the code LUKE15 at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. That's earthechofoods.com slash lukestory and your code is LUKE15. So the answer then, and this is what we can go into now, nice segue there, Luke, is... Um, <laughs> So we kind of know what the problem is, right? There's so many of us, I think, yeah. if you're listening to this show on a regular basis, you're definitely like, somebody sounded the alarm and red-pilled you. and <laughs> Like, there's something wrong, <laughs> which is great because we need that shock and yeah. awe sometimes in order yeah. to be motivated into action. But I'm always like, okay, cool, cool. So it's all rotten to the core. You can't really get in and tinker with it much because you'll just be squashed right. by the machine itself and just consumed by it. So answer seems to be, you just go into a parallel universe and do your own shit and right. start your own way of doing things and publicize that and share that and have conversations and be yeah. present for them. And then all of a sudden there's this parallel system or thing that's built and everyone is preferential to that because of the very nature of its inception being based on love and compassion and reality right. And, right. and curiosity and all these things you described. So yeah, I want to hear mm. about um, the tools that you use now that you've sort of, you know, hold the parachute and are off on your own flying through the sky with your practice, uh, which sounds fascinating too, from what I've listened to. Um, but you know, you, uh, I think dabble in, um, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, you know, the work of Rudolf Steiner, the stuff you're working on with the Paul Czech Institute. It seems like you have all these bases covered. So what are some of the things that you uh, find useful in your practice now? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in any of those things. I'd say I'm a relative expert in allopathy. But even the word expert sort of is that it's like settled. Now you know how to do it. But for me, there's, there's this really interesting curiosity as to how all of these technologies can be merged into a more comprehensive approach to human health, the human experience, we can say. So I've got those allopathic tools, which are mostly surgery and pharmaceuticals. We know those all too well because we've all been through that. And if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably not into those things anymore. So I've got those tools available. And I sometimes still order medications or imaging or labs or whatever from like the, the typical way. Um, on the other hand, and, and by the way, allopathy still has its, its means. If you get in a massive car accident, we're not going to 
biogeometry our way out of like hemorrhaging from your carotid artery. I get that. Maybe like a massive blood infection that's in your brain and your meninges, right? Pretty, pretty serious thing. You're going to die quickly. But barring that, there's not really that many reasons to go to the doctor. And this is coming from a doctor who doesn't ever go to the doctor. <laughs> um, and I don't doctor myself. I just take care of myself. So the vast majority of people who come to me are people who have been somewhat disillusioned from this, by the system or they want to have a home birth. Um, or they want to conceive and they're struggling with that. So the home birth thing is, is special because the major reason you would need a doctor or the operating room for a C-section is because of complications, right? The baby and the placenta are not communicating well anymore, what we call placental insufficiency. Maybe the baby's undergrown because the placenta is getting sicker before it has to. Um, you've got uh, hypertensive disorders, gestational diabetes. All of these things are completely preventable by getting your health in order before you get pregnant. The problem is that most of the people providing maternity care, including midwives, don't have all of that knowledge. So I bring all the lifestyle stuff that you've talked about into preconception care all the way through pregnancy into postpartum. And what we know from the data is that diet, movement, sleep, hydration, mindset, and, and um, what am I missing there? Well, EMF mitigation is a big one, and breath work and breathing. If you can just follow those seven principles, you're probably never going to need me, and that's okay by me. Because when I went into out of the conventional model, I figured I could do home birth. I'll get a whole kit and I'll drive around and deliver babies or you know attend attend births. <laughs> and then I realized I'll just step back and like support all the midwives around the country. So I've got a collaborator program where I do just that. And even if you've taken the greatest care of yourself, and and let me actually go back a second. The research shows that even movement alone decreases the risk of of um, bad perineal lacerations, of fetal growth issues, of placental issues, of gestational diabetes, of hypertensive disorders. You have shortened labor. You have faster recovery. You have uh, less likelihood of needing a C-section, less likelihood of needing a vacuum or forceps-assisted delivery. So those are all the things that you would need an OBGYN for. So if you can just get those seven principles in, in play, even one of them or two of them, you have a much greater chance of being able to exercise your autonomy, staying with a midwife and having a home birth. The other part of that is that if you have a midwife, she has licensing that is telling her that if they develop X, Y, or Z, you can't care for them anymore. You could go to jail. So the midwife has to say, sorry, you have to go and see an OBGYN now. On the flip side, if, you, if your midwife could consult with me or you consult with me, I can give you my full rundown, give you risks, benefits, alternatives. And if you decide you want to have a home birth, you've consulted with an MD. You don't even have to go into the system. So that's the other thing that I do. What? Is that the midwife will say, hey, Nathan, I got this thing. You think that this needs anything? I was like, you know what? Let's present her with risks, benefits, alternatives. Here's the data. Here's what it all shows. She's like, thank you. Don't even have to go to the clinic. Don't even have to go to the hospital. That's... Stay on course and have a baby. Dude, your phone might be really ringing after this <laughs> podcast. Well, that's great. I can do that. I mean, that's easy for me to do. I hope do. this is scalable. Because that's one of, one of the concerns that, that I and some people have around, you know, just having... I'm not even free birth, but just a, say a doula or like yeah. a team of doulas, yeah. right? Yeah. Female support, male support, doing it at home, no medical interventions. Hopefully everything goes okay. There's that school. Um, but then when you get into the midwifery, it's a little tricky because then there's a certain, and tell me where I've got this wrong or maybe elaborate sure. on it, but one of the categories of license for a midwife is more tight in and 
answerable to the medical system. And then there's these confines around time mm. windows. And well, if you, if you if you're hanging out for the home birth too long and you pass a certain time, certain midwives with a certain license they're dependent upon. That's right. Then cannot help you get admitted to a hospital or you show up at the hospital and they're like, no, get out of here. You waited too long. Yeah. You try to do a home birth, you right. lose. Like right. well, there's that piece. So that's very interesting if if what you're saying, if I have a grasp of it, is that even the medicalized licensed midwives could consult with you right. as the OBGYN and, right. and still, hopefully, if everything goes well, avoid the end hospital experience that wasn't their preference in terms of their style of birth. That's right. Yeah. So something like a hypertensive disorder, gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, if the midwife suspects that there's a hypertensive disorder brewing, they may have to, they may say, sorry, now that we know this, we got to go to the clinic. You go to the clinic, the OBGYN kind of shames you, kind of makes you feel bad for having a home birth. They kind of scare you out of having a home birth in some ways. And perhaps they even give a diagnosis that what we say is risks you out of midwifery care. Meaning now that this person has this diagnosis, that midwife, based on her licensing parameters, can't care for you in the home anymore. I'm always, there's always nuance. It's not just slap that diagnosis down on the chart because now you've actually altered the entire course of what she hopes for her birth. So let's take a more nuanced approach. Let's look at everything across her prenatal care. Is this more likely hypertensive disease or not? Or can we just keep monitoring? Nine times out of 10, it's not. But we love to be able to slap those diagnoses on there because it gives us something that we can do. <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's definitely gestational hypertension. Now we have to induce you at 37 weeks. You get on that train in the medical system and you can't get off sometimes. So instead, you consult with a a more open-minded, open-hearted OB who had a home birth and our second, our second baby at home, two-hour labor, breathed the baby out through effigy breathwork, which is a fantastic story. But I really believe in that. And if, and if, if a woman wants to exercise her autonomy, she can only do that if a person is not coercing her into doing something she doesn't want to do. And that's unfortunately how many OBGYNs operate. So I consult with the midwife. The midwife says, hey, I consulted with an OB. We're good to go. And that's that. That's you stay amazing. on the course. Yeah. That's super cool. What's the, uh, remind me of this, and I, I interviewed people recently about this, but I can only remember so much. Are there not like three sort of licensed tiers or categories for, for a midwife? Yeah, or maybe there, there's, there are. there's two and then there's one that has left or is not part of that system, but still is trained as a midwife. Could you yeah, eliminate yeah. that? So there's, there's, I wouldn't call them tiers because then that suggests that there's sort of a hierarchy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But Categories? At, at which I would be the top. Yeah, and I don't like that schematic. Okay. Uh, on, one, on, on one corner of the triangle is the OBGYN. Then you have a certified nurse midwife, which generally trains within the hospital system. There you go. But they sometimes yeah. will go into home birth as well. But in most states, including Texas, you have to have a Texas licensed MD as your collaborative physician if you want to prescribe. And so every OBGYN in Texas, I've heard, is really, really not all that great to work with. So I've had a couple people reach out from Texas. One woman last night actually was like, hey, can, can we collaborate? Because I need a doctor. So I have to get licensed in Texas to be her the collaborative physician. But I digress. The, the, that's a, a specific distinction between a certified nurse midwife and a certified um, professional midwife, which is generally licensed. But you could also be a CPM that says, thanks, state, but no thanks. I don't need your permission Those to do this. Those are the three, yes. Yeah. But yeah. then there's also independent midwives who don't even have a CPM. Oh, okay. They, they, don't, they don't re-up that. It's sort of like being board certified and you say like, thanks, but no thanks, board. I don't need your ah, permission. Okay. okay. So people like Marin Green of Indie Birth, who I, I showed you that video earlier, she is an independent midwife, gave her license back, doesn't even, I think, have her CPM credential anymore, but she's attended more births than I would trust her with anybody because she's that good. She's just is present and she pays attention 
and she approaches it with respect and compassion for informed consent and for the right to refuse treatment. And that's really all you need. And she knows when she has to transfer. So that's the type of person that even though you're not super educated at the CNM level or OBGYN level, I'm happy to work with you and I can be your consultant and I will back you up whenever you need something like a baby's breach or something. I'll even show up at the home and I'll uh, assist with that. Wow. So, so cool. Spreading uh, myself as much out as I can. I, I love this. I'm, I'm just can't, I can't help but wonder like, how does he have time for this? You know, it sounds like <laughs> just one client to me who's a, like overwhelming, but then I'm not you. Um, you talked about something I, I, and I acknowledge your humility of saying you're not an expert in Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or some of these other modalities, but you, you do borrow from them and are learning yeah. more and more. But you were talking about the um, chakra system and how oh, it relates yeah. to the different organs. I thought that was really fascinating and I was shocked that I'd never heard that. Could you share that? Yeah. Well, this is, this is sort of a poor attempt, I think, at us overlaying a 16,000-year-old practice of Ayurvedic medicine with our very, very contemporary allopathic medicine and saying like, oh, the chakra system does make sense because it corresponds with organ systems. It act, but it actually does work out this way. So if you consider there's seven chakras, crown all the way down to, to root. And the root and sacral chakras are really my domain because it's the, the second chakra is specifically geared towards the organs of the pelvis, the reproductive organs. The first chakra is interesting because it's associated with our adrenals. And then of course you have associations all the way up the chain, but we'll just focus on those two. If you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it kind of corresponds with those lower chakras as well. In the first rung, or the first chakra, your root chakra, that's where we have that sense of security, safety. People who are stressed out all the time don't feel like they have the roof over their head and they're making enough money and whatnot. That's something we all struggle with. So almost everybody has a first chakra issue. That leads to second chakra issues. And those second chakra issues are related to reproduction. So when I have a person who comes in with fertility issues, we always do a chakra loading through a health assessment questionnaire that I actually learned how to do that through the Czech Institute. But it's basically head-to-toe assessment of what's bugging you. Skin issues, eye issues, belly issues, you know, vulvar issues, vaginal issues, whatever. And if you, if you associate those each with the organ systems, you'll find that a lot of women with conception issues or even really any reproductive health issues, it's a first or second chakra issue and almost always a second chakra issue. So that second chakra, interestingly, through the Ayurvedic lens is not just associated with the reproductive organs. It's also associated with creative expression. Do we have a voice in our relationship? Do we still paint and dance and sing like we used to? Or are we just, you know, head to the grindstone, living out life, driving our hour commute every day, do our stuff at the end of the week, TGIF, get hammered on the weekend and do it again on Monday, right? <laughs> That's where like, there's no creativity. And a lot of doctors suffer from this because there's no creativity for the reasons we mentioned. So I'll get a lot of women who have first and second chakra issues. We have to do some adrenal support. That's also like, like, do you feel safe in your environment? Do you feel like you have enough? If you have enough, objectively, you've got a billion dollars in the bank, why are you still trying to get more? You know, that's something we all struggle with. That second chakra is fun though, because that's where we start painting together. We start dancing together, singing. Like just go sing in the shower. What's a good song that you like to sing? Go and belt it out in the shower. Drive and sing on the way to work. Start expressing yourself. Find your voice in your relationships. Find your voice with your kids. And that actually starts to get that that prana flowing again through the lens of Ayurveda. Similarly, in Chinese medicine, we've got qi. And I also utilize that where we have a yin and yang of everything. So yang, we're all in yang excess. But yin is where the magic happens. That's where you slow things down. Make sure your mouth isn't getting dried out during workouts. You're doing slow yogic movements. 
you're resting, you're digesting, you're relaxing, and you're you know, maybe doing some Tai Chi and Qigong as opposed to CrossFit every single day. So between those two energetic systems, we can oftentimes rectify everything without spending a single dollar. And that's why it's so important. Because even if we look at the functional medicine approach, right? Let's, look at, let's get the million-dollar workup of Luke's, you know, um, glucuronidation and methylation and sulfation and all this cellular stuff happening at the mitochondrial level. Let's get all that worked out. If you're still not feeling your best, is it possible that there's something happening within the emotional, mental, or spiritual bodies that's not corresponding to who you want to be or where you want to go? And that's why these other technologies, which are way older than the reductive Cartesian view of the human system, which is blood work and then replete, blood work and then replete. It gets us so far, but it doesn't get us far enough, um, especially whenever conception and birth is a spiritual process more than anything. Calling in the spirit of that baby. If your baby is coming into a womb governed by an energetic system that feels like I'm not enough or I'm not expressing myself, life isn't fun, why would that, the spirit of that baby you know, want to find its way in there. And it could also be something physical. I'm not, I'm not saying that that isn't always the issue. I'm saying that it's far more complicated than just let's jack you up with hormones and force your body to call in this baby, dragging that baby in as opposed to inviting that baby by getting some of the more energetic processes in alignment. And this probably sounds woo-woo for a lot of people because I'm a doctor, but it works. And that's all I need to know. It won't sound woo-woo to our people. (laughs) If anything, they'll be like, wait, he's a doctor? Hang on. What's he saying? (laughs) He still has his license? Hold up. Is it the LSD or am I actually hearing this? (laughs) So second chakra, interesting. Um, Of course, I'm always relating these things to my life. And um, when I left the house today, Allison decided a few days ago to start learning guitar and starting to learn how to sing. I woke up this morning, I heard this beautiful voice and I was like, what is that? Is there a mantra playing? And I went out in the living room and I was like, oh, it's Allison singing. Wow. It was so, it was like really good too. Wow. She plays around and fools around singing and we sing and just be silly, but she's yeah. actually singing, singing. I was like, holy shit. And it was the most beautiful, not just because it was her and I love her and she was singing well, uh, but it was just the vibration of that yeah. song in the house. Yeah. So thinking about her in the past couple of years of us being together, really moving into her feminine and putting her book out, Animal Power. Get it right now at animalpower.com. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a beautiful book, by the way. She oh, sent me a, thank a, you. a PDF version. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, we'll have to get you a real one while here. That'd be great. But, um, but just, you know, watching the feminine in its essence and, and watching that um, emerge and expand before my eyes over the past couple of years has been really beautiful and related to that second chakra. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's what was happening this morning. Right. There's so much more, right? With that presence. It's, oh, that sounds nice. Okay, I'm off to work. Yeah. What is actually happening there? Mm. I guess it's the way my mind and spirit work is she's not just singing. There's something happening here as we move into this next Phase she's calling. Life. She's inviting. That's, yeah, that's what it is, and that's a beautiful way that I, wow. I love you. How you just said that. She's she's sending out an invitation, and even if that invitation isn't enough, you know, even if that's not what actually needs to happen, you guys are going to be growing closer. And then someday, when you're not thinking about this, bam, a baby comes. It happens a lot in our infertility workup. And you know, I loved your interview with Cleopatra because there is the myth of infertility is real. Like there's a very very low percentage of people who truly can't get pregnant. It's a matter of taking your foot off the pedal and relaxing a little bit because in the reproductive endocrinology world, which is the specialist of, of OBGYNs that go into IVF and all of that stuff, 
oftentimes I saw people going in for their consultation and just being in the consultation and handing the reins over to somebody, they go home, they have sex and bam, a baby happens. So it wasn't something that was wrong. And, and anybody out there who's listening, you're not broken. You're not missing that magic ingredient. Sometimes it's just a matter of taking your foot off the pedal and sending out the invitation. That's sometimes all that has to happen. But that's the deep work that even Cleopatra talks about. I ask a lot of my, the same questions that she asked, uh, asks her clients. Like, what do you need? What does your mm -hmm. baby need mm -hmm. to come in? I mean, that's a really important thing that we don't sit with. Instead, we, we go back to Rene Descartes and we say, thank God he's here because we just have to pump you up with the right stuff. But this is more than just a physical process. This isn't a broken leg. This is a spiritual, the, the womb is the yin. It's the moon. It's inviting. That's the space of acceptance. And if you're in yang excess all the time, you're, out, you're, you're, you're overshadowing the yin and you need to nourish that yin in order to invite that in. And that comes from all those activities that, that she's doing. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, thinking even about that um, interview with Dr. Cleopatra. Yeah. Again, I'm just going into it knowing virtually nothing about the topic at hand, yeah. but wanting to learn. And, uh, you know, I, I think I had the perspective, man, we're, we have a fertility crisis. There's so many women yeah. that are infertile. And she was like, actually, no, it's just the term is used so right. loosely. Right, right. When it's it, the vast majority of the time totally fixable with some of the things that right. we're discussing here. Right. They're actually a very, I forget what the percentage, but exceedingly small percentage of women that are truly medically infertile. It's like one to 2%. It's, okay, yeah. it's extremely low. But think about how yeah. many women are, I mean, I heard this term thrown around a lot. Like, oh, she's infertile. They're infertile. I might be infertile. We have, I'm infertile, so I'm going to go fix it. You right. know, it's just, right. it's not actually what you are. There's right. just perhaps an imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. And it could also just be like, hey, you guys are, you guys are working through your own things and you guys are evolving consciously and unconsciously into a space where, wow, that invitation is now feeling good. And like I said, as soon as you turn your, turn your back on, on, the, on the thing, it creeps up and bam, a baby happens. And if it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. it's also not a failure on anybody's part. It's not that you didn't figure out the magic solution. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And that's also a part of this, this journey together, you know, for you and Allison to go through that together. And then someday it just happens when you're not expecting it. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is that the possibilities are out there. It's just not a matter of, we got to get this done. Let's hijack the system and make it happen. Because that almost always makes it happen in a way that you guys aren't totally comfortable with either. So I just want to honor that process. Because I think a lot of people go through this and they think, what am I doing wrong? What is my, I'm a failure. My body's broken. It's not, it's not that. We have to take the pressure off of ourselves and give ourselves a little bit of grace. Because this is a sensitive thing. This is a really... Um, it's a it's a it's an issue that requires a little bit of grace and a little bit of self love. So don't be too hard and, on yourself. Yeah, and also um, trust and surrender, right? Surrender is a big <laughs> one. It's like yeah, what, how many things are really under our control? Right. You know, whether you believe in God or not, which I I happen to firmly believe in all the gods. Yeah. Um, there's something happening that makes the acorn become the oak tree, right? Whatever right. that thing is, that's what I call God, I guess. Mm. But that thing has its own order mm. and its own plan. And as I've observed in my life, mostly through painful realizations, is that the plan that I had is often so limited, so short-sighted, and sometimes so astronomically mm. doomed for failure. <laughs> 
that the plan that God had in mind was way, way better than anything I could have come up with. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. it's only through the process of like surrendering your attachment over time and time again to how you think things should be or should go, letting that go and just throwing up your hands and being a willing participant in this game in which you have very little say. Yeah. And then seeing the thing that happens as a result of that surrender is infinitely cooler than whatever your little pea brain came up with as right. a vision. Right. You know, this right. happens to me continually over and over and over again ad infinitum. It's just right. now it's getting to be funny when I have ideas of like, no, I, need to, I have to control this. It has to go this way. Hit resistance, drop it, let it go, surrender. And then I was like, oh my God, thank God I didn't get what yeah. I wanted. Yeah. That yeah. was so lame. Yeah. You know, right. or just right. so minuscule compared to the magic that's unfolding as a result of that, yeah. that deep trust. And I think the psychedelic journey is actually a really good allegory. If anybody else has had that out there, if you resist it, it, it sometimes doesn't go anywhere. But as soon as you surrender and you just open your mouth and exhale and you lay into that and just drop into the current and let grandmother or you know whatever take over and you start dancing with it, that's when stuff starts you know unfolding for you. But resisting and trying to control the experience is something that we all really struggle with at times in our life. You know, it's, it's as simple as like trying to force the land to grow one, one plant when the elemental beings in Steiner's philosophy and biodynamics, they're going to be pushing up different plants. It doesn't matter what you want. It's not, it's not your decision. You have to surrender to the process of nature and we have to get back into that rhythm and then things unfold the way that they're going to unfold. And it's not on us to try to make everything, you know, fit into the, to the hole that it was cut out for. Absolutely. Take me back to the third chakra. Oh, the and so on. <clears throat> I don't remember them all the way up. Uh, third chakra is related to re uh, the digestive system, if I recall. The fourth chakra is related to that's where we're up at the. Uh, we're at the. Let's see. We're at the solar plexus. Um, we get up to the throat. We go the to the thyroid. Pineal, the thyroid. Right. Yeah. And what? So because I, the reason I don't remember them all is because yeah. generally speaking, I start with that mother and daughter issue down there. The first and second. The mother being here's what the primary issue is. The daughter is a result of this one being gunked up. And as you go up the chain, I've been finding that if you get those bottom kind of working in order, then the others start to kind of fall in line as well. You could also start at the crown and go downward. Um, but because most of my, my clients are starting down there, right? you know, we just work up the chain and stuff just <laughs> so starts to figure itself you, out. You're not having your first consultation. All right, let's do the pineal meditation. You know, it's exactly, like, wait, exactly. what's happening down here? That's exactly right. Is yeah. there fire or ice? Let's start there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, cool. I don't have them all memorized. So when I do yeah, have yeah. to go up there, I just get my chart out and I start remembering yeah. like, oh yeah, that's right. That's I just right. thought that was fascinating, the overlay of this ancient, ancient, technology yeah. right and then the, i'm always looking for correlations and sure. correspondence like that i think it's so interesting like ding 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 anything i can find i think to intellectually validate something that i sense innately is so yeah yeah it helps it just helps with the buy-in right i'm yeah. like okay this felt right but now there's some empirical evidence or a correlation that helps yeah. concretize my commitment to that particular right uh, path or idea well, um, and, and even with biogeometry, yeah. we didn't talk about that. Yeah. But biogeometry is really cool because we're talking about the energetic fields of the earth now. And they borrow from themes in Chinese medicine, feng shui, for example. They borrow from, the, from Ayurveda. In fact, when you're measuring your personal wavelength with a, with a pendulum, you turn your hand over because there's a chakra on your palm. 
that's not even incorporated into the seven main chakras. There's thousands of chakras within Ayurveda. We talk about the seven because it's this sort of like neo-tantric, neo-tantric kind of new contemporary version of Tantra. Well, it's easier or, to make a graphic Ayurveda. for it too. Yeah, you know? exactly. It looks so cool in your wall, but if there's a whole bunch of lit up dots all over the body. You just need a, someone sitting like Buddha yeah. and you know, all yeah. colors of the rainbow and there you go. It's you, easier to paint that way. Yeah, you know? yeah totally. <laughs> so you use the back of your palm instead of the front. So biogeometry is borrowed from all these philosophies and I love that. And actually anthroposophy as well. It borrows from anthroposophy as well. So when you consider that like, okay, instead of us in, allop- in allopathy, the mistake we make is that there's one way to do this and everything else is hogwash. What if we borrowed from all of these technologies that have been around for way longer than our internet and they've been demonstrating this over you know, millennia? Why not just lean on that a little bit and let's look at what works for in- each individual individual person. So I would never say one modality works for everybody, which is why I borrow from a whole bunch and I can always fall back to surgery and pharmaceuticals if I have to. I haven't had to for a while because a lot of this stuff really matters. That's super cool. Yeah. So the correlation of the chakra system in mm-hmm. Ayurveda and the yin and yang fundamental principle of Chinese medicine. I mean, yeah. that's a lifetime of study right there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Even if you just wanted to go deep into those, you'd probably just scratch the surface within one lifetime yeah. of committed yeah. study, you know? So yeah. I, I am much the same, um, well, not probably more of a general generalist because I don't actually do this for people, but I don't know. I think some of us just have a kind of a, a mind that's just perpetually curious and you, you go down one thread and you find, oh my God, there's a whole spool yeah. and then you just keep yeah. going and there's just an infinite amount of truth available to explore. Well, and that makes it so much fun to be like what do what we do as well, especially for me, because I've got like a Chinese medicine doctor friend. I've got an Ayurvedic, you know, medicine friend. I've got a tantric practitioner friend. Like I got Doria Kareem. I'll send her questions with with biogeometry. And I can I can pick and choose how I incorporate this into the care because I don't want to be an expert in all those things. Like you don't go to the hardware store to buy eggs. You go to the hardware store to buy hammer and nails. So you can't expect to go to the doctor's office expecting nutritional advice, right? We have nutritionists in the hospital. We have physical therapists. The doctors do surgery and pharmaceuticals. And I still have the skills to do surgery and pharmaceuticals. But, but if a person's coming to me and I know that I sell nails, but they need eggs, let me get you somebody who knows everything about eggs and then come back to me and we'll revisit this. I mean, that's, that's to me what personalized medicine is. I think that's where we're going. But it's not coming from the conventional industrial medical, the medical industrial complex. It's coming from thoughtful people. Um, I think I'm one of those people, but there's a lot of people in your life as well who are trying to make sense of all of this stuff and actually going back into history to see what we can bring into the contemporary care of women um, or people who are dying. It's the other area that I use this stuff. Yeah. People often ask me why I'm so obsessed with red light therapy. I've been doing it for years, and frankly, I plan to continue forever due to its incredible benefits. Thousands, yes, I said thousands, of peer-reviewed research articles have demonstrated the benefits of red and near-infrared light for things like skin health, reduced pain and inflammation, and faster muscle recovery. I love to do my red light first thing in the morning to get the red light I might get from watching the sunrise. And as red light therapies become so popular, there are several different red light therapy companies now, but I personally use and recommend Juve for a few reasons. 
First, they offer a wide selection of configurations from small handheld devices to large setups that can treat your entire body. I personally use both. Another feature I love with Juve's latest generation of products is something they called Ambient Mode, which utilizes lower-intensity red light designed to be used at night as a healthy alternative to bright blue light, which protects your melatonin levels and, as a result, your sleep. This is what I use in the kitchen at night in our temporary apartment to balance out the blue light of the nasty overhead lighting. So if you want to get down with some red light, Juve has got you covered. And for a limited time, they're offering all my listeners, including you, an exclusive discount on your first order. Just go to juve.com slash Luke and apply my code Luke to your qualifying order. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. And of course, some exclusions apply as this is a limited time offer. So hurry up and grab your Juve now. Let's touch on the biogeometry. So I've been in contact with uh, Ibrahim Karim, the creator of this incredible technology. Um, And he's been writing a book and then we're going to do a podcast and it falls through and he lives in a couple other countries. And so it hasn't happened yet. But I've been using that stuff sort of quietly. I haven't talked a lot about it because I don't really know how to explain it yet. (laughs) <laughs> but I just trust him and I hear his interviews. I read his stuff. I go, whatever he's doing feels true. So I bought his technology and you know I've done my house and stuff like that. Um, but when you came in, you're now have learned or are learning how to be um, a biogeometry, what is it called? A uh, practitioner. Practitioner. I, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. And then you got out your pendulum for those listening that missed it. Um, and you're just doing some testing on the environment here. And then I was like, ooh, let me do a boost on my FLFE service, which is this quantum energy consciousness elevating subscription service that I have on my office and house and stuff. I've talked about it a lot, but we're at the level 540 just as a given, which is a really nice um, vibration in your home. But you have one daily boost of 600, which is really high using the David Hawkins scale of consciousness as a point of reference. That's so cool. 600, <laughs> is, uh, 600 is what you would feel if you walked in a cathedral or something like that. You know, it's yeah. high space. And I like yeah. to boost those when I do podcasts. And then your readings went up on the thing. I was like, there, there's empirical yeah. evidence there that yeah. something is happening that's sure. positive, right? Sure. Um, but anyway, break down what you know about biogeometry, how you're starting to use that. Because already you're like, oh, I'm not an expert, but the stuff you told me before the podcast was already infinitely more than I know. So please um, elaborate. Yeah. Well, I, I always give that caveat that I'm not an expert because you know it's sort of like why I haven't written a book. Like Once you put it on paper, it seems like it's there and it's like destined to live forever. And if I learn something new, I can't go back and change it. That's not really true, but that's why I always give that caveat that, hey, it's an evolving process for me. If I were to say I'm an expert in all these things, I would be leading people astray. But I will say that um, biogeometry is the most woo out of the closet I've gotten since I've been in medical school. And really, what it, per- what it really pertains to is those energetic, the subtle energetics of any biological system, which is polarized. You've got, you've got a polarity to your body. There's a polarity to plants, etc. But the fields that govern the energetic... Uh, the energetic fields around the earth are not polarized, but they, they produce this sort of grid of what governs how biological systems do. And so when you consider how a plant grows, you see trees sometimes grow up and then they get this like weird, gnarly, like 90 degree turn around something. It's possible 
that there's a grid line there. And that's why plants grow in these strange ways. They're avoiding Holy crap. grid lines. Right? What? Yeah. The problem with humans is we don't grow in one place and grow around the grid lines because we're not stationary. So as you're going through your life, you're passing through all of these, these grid lines. And now with EMF everywhere, you're, you're the field that would govern how a normal, healthy human would grow. Um, and we'll get into that in a second because this is actually relevant to embryology. Instead of being governed by the natural, let's say the natural uh, quality of these fields, you're now also having to deal with perhaps detrimental impacts of electromagnetic frequencies. So a lot of people don't believe in this stuff, but the people who do believe it are turning to blocking technologies. And you've got a lot of those in your new renovations, which I'm so stoked to check out one day. But you can't block it all the time because when you drive down the street, you're still passing through all of these fields. And so biogeometry is the creation of shapes, two-dimensional and three-dimensional, that create vibrational frequencies that allow you to reharmonize with the fields of Earth without having to worry about the detrimental impacts and deharmonizing impacts of these other fields that are not biological at all. So the way I can try to help people demonstrate how this might be impactful is if we consider developing embryo, which is, again, my specialty is how does a baby grow? Let's look at chymatics, right? The vibration of a tin plate with salt granules on it at different frequencies creates this incredible geometric patterns. You can do this with, with bodies of water as well. You get like a big blob of water, blast it with, or, or, or vibrate it at different frequencies and you get these incredible 3D, 3D geometrical shapes. So with the changing of a frequency of a, of a, a moldable, uh, I don't know, bunch of stuff, bunch of matter, you get these different patterns. Well, if you look at a zebrafish developing under a time lapse, you get two cells meet and they create an embryo. And the embryo divides and divides and divides and divides and divides. After a couple thousand divisions, you get a billion cells there. And you start to see them all migrating to where they need to go. There's no like person up there playing chess that's moving those pieces into place. Maybe there is. But who's, you know, who's to say that, that we're not seeing a similar something happen there when we look at chymatics. So if you, if you consider that there's all these billions of cells, they're carefully orchestrating their movements and nudging and bumping along and going to the spot where they, where they you know, reside, there's no intelligence there apart from some greater field that's telling those cells where to go when in the embryological development. So if we go through our entire life being bathed in this, this sort of anti-biological field of EMF and everything else, what if we could mitigate the effects of that? Not just block it, but mitigate it because you're going to be bathed in it when you go to the grocery store or whatever else. And that's where the, the shapes of biogeometry, these two and 3D shapes, which are signatures, they could be attachments on your windows, attachments above your door, um, coils around your water pipes. What if we could actually change the quality of how these, these non-biological fields or waves um, impact the field that would otherwise be life-giving within any polarized biological system. And that's what, the, that's what the practice is all about. And we did just demonstrate it in your room here. But even if you were to put some stickers up on your windows, I could just do a one, one, one through in one room, you might find that you sleep better that night. You might find that you're less agitated. You might find that your digestive system's working a little bit better, that your sore shoulder doesn't hurt as much anymore. We just don't know. 
But they've done some pretty incredible studies in small towns across Europe, and they've found that people are, are floored by the results. Ever since they put these big cell phone towers up in this tiny you know, town of Hamburg or whatever in Switzerland, the cows aren't getting as much mastitis. The cows are, de- are, are delivering um, babies you know, at, a, at, a, you know, at, a, at a higher yield every year or, or whatever. The people that are living in the town have, have less depression, less anxiety. They're sleeping better. And they're all like, hey, the cows did better, but we're happy with it too, right? So they've actually done some, they've done true experiments to see if this stuff works. And Ibrahim Karim, the guy that you've been chatting with, is so humble about it that he, and the one story I love to tell is that they were like, hey, so, you know, can you change, can you fix the town? He's like, you want me to fix the town? And there's a, and leave the cell phone tower there? And they're like, I guess that sounds pretty crazy. And he's like, yeah, okay, I can do that. And through some of these very, very basic um, shapes, which again, emit a vibrational quality that helps you harmonize a biological system with the surroundings, they're seeing these incredible results. So when I started looking at the research, and it's like actually well-done research, and started experimenting with in my home, I was like, there's something to this. So I'm now going to be incorporating that into my practice. And I haven't started doing it entirely because I want to really understand it because I'm a total skeptic about a lot of things. But then I see it happening and I'm like, okay, let's go deep. And then down the rabbit hole we go. So that's where I'm at with that. And I'm that's, excited. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, you've reinvigorated my curiosity about it. And the, the town in Switzerland, that was the first thing that got my attention was reading that study and being such a fanatic about yeah. EMF and cell towers and such. Yeah, yeah seemed apparent to me and it sounds like it is and i'll further find out from the man himself but this is something that could be adopted and you could you could harmonize every cell tower in the world for very little money i mean imagine like literally just rogue people like me just kooks could just go around and like bang, bang, do biogeometry on every cell tower that you see and like the, there. the beauty is you don't even need to go to the tower they really? use these emitters on buildings so that it's aimed in the direction of the cell phone tower. No way. This is incredible. I can't wait for you to talk to him. Holy shit. See, I envisioned him just going around and putting the stickers on the cell tower or something, you know? Oh, this is cool. There are are these like big emitter things that you learn how to use in the advanced course. But again, if you're just looking at your home surrounding, these are like little plastic stickers with specific angles drawn in. And uh, that's all it takes to, to harmonize your home. And then you get a little further. And yeah, then we could talk about harmonizing the world using some very simple technologies, which is why it's so cool to me. Like yeah, simple, it's it Occam's is. razor. Like the simplest solution is the best solution. And yeah, it uh, gives me hope too, because sometimes I just look at the state of affairs and I don't know, I think we're too <laughs> far gone. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, that's why I'm building my own life raft over here for people that want to do medicine a little right, differently. Right. So. <laughs> uh, tell us a bit about what you've um, gained from Rudolf Steiner and that whole perspective. I, I don't know a lot about him, you know, bits and pieces over the years, but I've not really gone head first into that, uh, that realm, but it seems to have piqued your interest. It, it has. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, um, so this really goes again, back to like, if we're only looking at the physical, like Rene Descartes set, set us up for this. I think therefore I am like, yeah, mind, body, great. That's important. But whenever you're with birth and death, you realize that there's something more, there's something more energetic happening there. And Steiner does a really nice job of trying to help us answer what is that initial spark of life that distinguishes a plant from a rock? And what is the force that distinguishes an animal from a plant? And what is that separate force, that field, whatever you want to call it, that separates a human from an animal? And it gives this fourfold understanding. You've got physical, etheric, 
astral in the eye. And as, a, a, a bio, a, as an organism develops, and this is what Waldorf schools are all based on, it's based on seven-year cycles. So 7, 14, 21, 28, all the way up to about 60 is how their development um, sort of paradigm looks. And of course, this is developed back in the early 20th century. So they didn't go beyond 60 because not a lot of people lived into their 80s and 90s. But on that seven-year um, path, if some, at some time when you're being embodied with these subtle energetic bodies, something disrupts it. Like let's say you have a, a trauma at seven years old. It may disrupt the individuation process, as Steiner says, and lead to something downstream, like an autoimmune condition. So that's where you would have to actually support the eye energetic body in, in, in reincorporating these subtle energetic, energetic bodies into the total biologic organism. And that might re require us to do a whole biography of your entire life history and then use specific remedies, which are generally homeopathic, to support the eye or the astral or the etheric, whatever's actually plaguing you. So an autoimmune condition that's really common in women's health is endometriosis. A lot of doctors don't consider it autoimmune, but I'm pretty darn sure it is. And the reason I know is if they go on like the WALS protocol or a strict paleo protocol, their symptoms go away like that. So there's something to it and we know it's inflammatory. But what Steiner actually says about autoimmune disorders is that as this person is individuating, something disrupted the individuation of the eye into the, into the organism. So we have to support the eye later in life so that we can complete the individuation that didn't happen earlier in life. And so you do that through like quartz. You mentioned silica earlier. Quartz, uh, phosphorus, those types of uh, homeopathic remedies will actually be a treatment, a lasting treatment for somebody with an autoimmune condition. But it isn't always that simple. This is just one piece of the puzzle. But I have to say, when people go to an anthroposophic medicine doc, they generally find relief from lifelong like injuries or, or um, symptoms that have been plaguing them for their entire lives. So again, it's like there are doctors doing this around the country and they're doing it with incredible success when all that little old OBGYNs have to offer is surgery and pharmaceuticals. I'm going to go with the other guys because they're actually doing something to help other people. And it's a, a learning an entirely new field for me. But why not? You know? Yeah. <laughs> why not? Because it's going to help. It's going to help. It's going to help me understand myself and my clients a little bit better if I can start looking at this as more than just uh, the lack of, a, a, you know, a, a deficiency in aspirin, you know, <laughs> or a deficiency yeah. in a major surgery that might kill you on the operating room table. You know, and that's how we're trained to do it in the medical model. I'm not bashing it. It's, it's got good re it got good reasons to have to have it, but it's uh, it's also not doing much um, for something like endometriosis or a lot of these other issues that are plaguing women. I think that's what's frustrating to me. Although I agree, if I'm hit by a bus and we walk out of here, like don't put some ashwagandha on it. You know what I mean? like, <laughs> Wait, let me get my pendulum. <laughs> I'm all for going to the hospital. Put me back together. Yeah. But yeah. it's, I think for me, it's just like when I know things are fixable because I just believe in the the complete energetic potential of every living right. being. Right. You look at something like fibroids and it's like, what? That doesn't need to be happening. I mean, I don't know how to fix it yet, but someone does, right? Or yeah. someone knows what, why that's even happening. And yeah. so many things like that just seem... Because I guess I've overcome some things, not so much on physical disease, but... <laughs> mental and emotional for sure yeah to some degree some might argue yeah uh but i just know that miracles are possible right and not only are they possible they're everywhere and right. they're infinitely abundant 
once we start believing in them or at least finding someone else who can lead us down the path of believing and then experiencing, you know? That's so much more fun too. Like if, if you imagine you, you work your whole life and then in your mid-30s you realize, I have every answer I possibly need as a doctor. Like that's boring too. Like why wouldn't I want to go out and explore some other modalities for treating? You know, like a C-section, it takes me 30 minutes to do one of the you know, historically most dangerous surgeries that we've ever done. And it's because of all the blood flow of the uterus. Like, great, I, ma- I, I mastered that. You know, I'm using air quotes because I don't really ever feel like anybody's a full master. But like, now that I've done that, is this just the thing I do for the rest of my life? Or do I want to also explore maybe some other possibilities? You did mention um, fibroids, which is kind of an interesting story because the one thing I'm finding works best for fibroids is something called pelvic steaming. You heard about pelvic steaming? Is that different than yoni steaming? It's the same as yoni same. steaming. Same, okay. Yeah. Different, less pel- hippie word. Well, no, pelvic because men can do it as well and we don't have yonis. And it's, <laughs> okay. it's like good for the testes and the penis Are and the, you serious? the anus. Oh, yeah. God, don't tell me this. Yeah. I'll be off doing this shit. <laughs> we need to get you a stool with oh, a hole in it. Oh, <laughs> God, as if I don't do enough weird stuff already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. No, carry on. Yoni steaming. But yeah, you know, it's a, a blend of Chinese herbs. You boil up in a pot of water. It comes up through a hole in the pot. You know, your client will have a blanket over their shoulders and just have some them, you know, alone time. Let the steam come up in through there. It can help with cervical dysplasia, which is the early pre precancerous stage of uh, cervical cancer. Early endometrial dysplasia or hyperplasia, we call it, with atypia. That's the precancerous endometrial stuff. Um, fibroids, um, polyps, fertility issues, tubal disease, PCOS, severe endometriosis. A lot of this stuff is being reversed by people who are doing oh. vaginal steaming. And it cost them $100 with a woman I set them up with by cell phone. I'm like, listen, you could pay me for all the, my time in the world. Let me just get you to see my friend, Adrian. Wow. And they go and see her and I never hear from them again. Um, and that's it. <laughs> does, does Adrian or anyone like her uh, have a website? or are, I there, think, uh, is, are there leading thought leaders in the Yoni steaming yeah, space? Yeah, Kelly Garza is the, okay. the, the steamy chick, I okay. think, is, I think okay. her name. So yeah. we'll put that in the show notes at lukestory.com slash Nathan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something I've heard of in the periphery, but yeah. I've never dealt into, obviously. Well, a lot of women have heard about it, but they like think it's kind of like, you know, it's tangential in some way. Like this could actually be all the thing you need, especially if you have cervical disease and you're worried about getting cervical cancer and we're getting your immune system and your adrenals back on board so your body can learn from this virus as opposed to start growing tumors in your cervix and into your pelvic sidewall. Like it's a pretty serious thing, cervical cancer. It's a horrible disease, but it's not a bad guy coming in. It's your body has been inadequate at incorporating the message from this virus. It's that exosome theory, Bruce Lipton, all of that. I really believe in that. And, that. and the reason I know that is because if we boost your immune system and make you healthy, you clear that, that virus and your cervix goes back to normal. And one thing that can help with that is vaginal steaming because it's the increased blood flow to the cervical tissue with the incorporation of these, this blend of herbs that provides a great rebalancing through the lens of Chinese medicine, reharmonizing with your environment as opposed to forcing your body to do something that it doesn't want to do, like chopping off your cervix. Or, you know, endometrial cancer, getting your whole uterus removed. And, um, and a lot of women don't want that. Believe it or not, everybody, you know. But that's the only option that we give them. So what and, if I and, can just and, keep you out of the operating room? Right, that's great. And meanwhile, over here, there's something that's been going on probably for all of recorded history. Yeah. You know, women yeah. have figured yeah. out like, hey, these herbs work for this. Let's heat them up and sit on the pot. And, exactly. I mean, this is, it didn't just come out of nowhere, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. it's like, think about the first humanoid that like ate a, <laughs> psychedelic mushroom you know there <laughs> right. was one first person and there was one first woman right. who was like i don't know let me try it for this and I was like, 
spread the word. It worked, you know? Like, guys, guess what I just found in that pile of poop over there? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I've been tripping my, my balls off all day. <laughs> um, I've heard you talk about this. Well, I was going to say utopian, but I want to say that it is possible because in this reality, anything's possible. But, you know, we've talked about some of the, the ways in which we approach um, birth and death that could be improved upon. And you're talking about all these different ways that you're doing it and helping to build awareness around um, these ideas. But I know that you also have a vision yeah. that's like next level. And you're actually, you know, taking some steps to see this come to fruition. But paint for us, let's just pause and paint for us a picture of what the most holistic, beautiful birth and death experience could be like. The environment, the energetics, what's actually happening or not happening as you see it in, you know, this yeah. foreseeable future. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, that question, Luke, because it's pretty much what I think about any time I'm alone, is like, how could we reimagine the way a baby is born or a way a person dies? And we'll just, this, since this project is currently really just focused on providing better care for women who want the most autonomous birth that they can dream of, what comes to mind when I start thinking about that experience is instead of having all the lights and the noise and the interruptions and the sharp things that you didn't consent to and the maybe non-consented vaginal exams and all the clicking on computers and all these visitors in the room, it's like the whole squad comes in when you have a baby and you're exposed there through this incredible process. Instead of that, what if we actually this is something I, I took from Charles Eisenstein and his wife, Stella. What if, we, what if a baby emerged into a world with angelic singing? And I'm not actually saying there's a bunch of people standing there singing. Maybe I am. But if you imagine that environment where we have this incredible harmonics and a beautifully you know, situated room that's free of EMF and, and amber lights are lit and there's not these harsh overhead UV lights and all these noises that don't belong there, but actually quiet or singing, or a woman just roaring in, in the rapture of birth. It's, yes, it, it, it is very painful for many women. It also is simultaneously very exalting. There's a rapture, an ecstasy of, that, of, this, of this transformation that's taking place. What if it was just her screaming and moaning and smiling and celebrating with her partner? What if that was the birth experience? So what we want to do is create an environment where it's very nature immersive. So we want to provide grounds for what, um, what could be the most autonomous, beautiful birth that a person wants to have. Maybe they don't necessarily feel equipped to do it at home, or maybe they want to do it even better than at home, and they want to be immersed in nature. They're going to be getting all the greatest food, and they're going to be surrounded by people that are holding space for her to exercise her sovereignty over this incredible process. Um, it's called the Indie Birth Midwifery Institute. And it will not only be a place where women can come to give birth, but let's say that they have a vaginal breech baby, their baby's butt down, or they've got twins and they can't find a home birth doc or a midwife team that will attend their birth at home. So their only option is the hospital. And they're like, I'd rather drop dead than give birth in a hospital. Then we have a safe space here for them to do it. We're probably going to do it in Kentucky because that's where I live and I love it right now. And Marin Green, who's the other, my counterpart on this project, um, is in Kentucky. We've got a whole bunch of big names in the project. Um, Stu Fishbein, Charles Eisenstein's on our committee, Rick Safries, David Hayes, a lot of other people that are big names in the birth space who value informed consent and the right to refuse treatment and shared decision-making above all. Um, we all believe that a woman, even if a baby is breech, deserves the right to choose how she has her baby. 
and to be treated with respect and compassion and a soft, caring touch and gaze at all times. So in the Institute, it's a, it's a place for women to give birth on their own terms. And it's a place that honors this as a sacred process. And we're going to honor that mostly by offering an opportunity for midwives, doctors, men, women, whoever is called to the care of birthing women to come and train with us. And to not just, you know, we're going to do the core competencies of what it means to be a midwife or a doctor or whatever else. But we are focused on the independent midwife, not the necessarily a CPM, CNM that we were talking about, but a person who's called to do this, not because some licensing board gave them permission, but because they feel called to do this in the right way. Um, but, if, but, but all comers are welcome to come and learn from us. Um, level 2.0 would also be to offer end-of-life care in that, in that same way. And then level 3.0, we're going to be developing food sovereignty and all of the other biohacking, functional medicine approaches to living, birthing, and dying in the optimal way. And that's the grand vision. That's, what I'm, that's the life raft that I'm building. Because I don't think we need to burn the system down. I think we still need the system. But whenever 40% of babies are coming out through the abdomen, we're doing something wrong. And I really want to see, I really want to start to correct the ship and move the needle a little bit. I think the way that we approach birth is best served through the wise woman model of care. Women caring for women. And, um, and that's where we're headed. Badass, dude. Yeah. The show you're listening to would not be possible without the support from our friends over at Super Speciosa. These guys make an incredible line of Kratom products. If you're not familiar with Kratom, and I'd be surprised if you weren't because I talk about it quite a bit on the show, it's an all-natural herb related to the coffee plant that has been used in Thailand and other South Asian countries for centuries. It helps energize your mind while at the same time relaxing your body. It's really an incredible plant medicine. And Super Speciosa only has one ingredient pure kratom leaf. And the issue with this herb is that there's a lot of really shady characters selling it online and gas stations. You might even see it at a liquor store. And there are issues with contamination such as heavy metals, molds, etc. These guys test for purity and they also select the very specific strains that are going to achieve the desired result, whether that's easing pain in your body, relaxing, chilling out, or even prepping for a workout. So this is a great social lubricant for me and something that I've been using on a regular basis. And I've looked far and wide, trust me, to find great strains and also, as I said, to find a clean version of it. Now, if you're going to check this out and you're new to it, I would encourage you to try their Signature Super Speciosa strain. It's the most popular, most well-rounded, and also best-selling. So if you're ready to check out some Kratom, here's what you do. Go to getsuperleaf.com slash luke. And if you want to save 20%, use the code Luke at checkout to save 20% on your entire order. Again, that's getsuperleaf.com slash Luke. Uh, in closing, I want to hear about your two births, the births of your children. Okay. What, what were those experiences like and, and how did they differ? The first one, uh, we were in San Diego when we got pregnant. I got recruited out to Kentucky and we had a baby months after moving to Kentucky. So we found a, a, an OBGYN. Um, my wife made the decision to have a hospital-based birth because that's where she felt most safe. For anybody out there questioning home birth, free birth, hospital birth, you do birth where you feel the most safe and most seen. And if that's in the hospital, that's also okay because you can have a beautiful birth in the hospital. If you feel afraid of having a baby at home, then maybe being in the hospital and vice versa. 
But my wife felt better being in the hospital. It was a very fast labor, six, six hours labor. Uh, we were at like midnight going to bed and she started breathing a little faster. And she was like, hmm, getting a little hard, you know, a little more than Braxton Hicks right now. So I was like, you know, why don't we get on and walk around a little bit downstairs? I made her lemonade. She was like, no lemonade. I lit some sage. No sage. And she started, <laughs> she started pacing. I was just trying to be as supportive as possible. And um, eventually she got on all fours on the ground and was like doing like child's pose on the couch. And I could tell like stuff's moving along here. And you don't know how long labor is going to be. It could be three days. So she was like bracing herself for three days of this. And she was already, <laughs> she's a tough woman. My wife is, is a, a, a force to be reckoned with in so many regards. And for her to, to look like she was in pain, that, that's a lot. So I said, honey, why don't we go draw you a bath upstairs? And we walked her upstairs and she's in the bath and she started like arching her back and, and rocking back and forth. And like the tigress is coming out. And I said, honey, I think it might be a good idea if I just gently check to see where we're at. Because she did want to go to the hospital. And I didn't want to like have a baby in the car. And I could see stuff transitioning. So I checked and like it was all head in the vagina. It was like, baby's going to come out. So I was like, honey, let's get out of the tub. When I get you your towel, I'm going to go get the car ready. And then I moved like the roadrunner. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> we got to go. And then I, I was like, okay, babe, let's go to the car. And I got her in the car and we, we draped her over the back seat. If anybody's ever in this position, drape over the back seat. Fa the, the, your, your partner is facing backwards in the car. Just lean over that seat. That was a great trick that my friend, uh, Felicia Sokol, who's an international doula and birth educator, she taught me that. Drove to the hospital, got there. They had a tub ready for her. She got in the tub and like an hour later, out came a baby. No lacerations. My wife took very, very good care of herself. We had a great OB that just stayed hands off the whole time. Um, and that was, that was her experience from my perspective. I won't share what she was going through. That would be for another time. But let's just say that it left some things to be desired from her perspective. So the second time around, not even two years later, we weren't trying, but it just, again, we weren't even thinking about it. And sure enough, I left my stuff where it doesn't belong. And, uh, or it does. Or it does, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's the only place it belongs. That's right, <laughs> right. That's, that's right. It's better than like, yeah, a thousand of the places. A I Kleenex? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Talking about life force here. Come on, man. <laughs> um, so we got pregnant again. And, uh, and then um, this time around, we were in the middle of this COVID thing. Because the first one came two weeks before hospitals started shutting down, not letting partners in the room with births taking the babies away from moms during the births. It was our nasty environment. I'm so glad we had the baby before that. But this time around, we were worried about that happening too. Swabbing during labor. I mean, imagine what I just described. And they're trying to stick a five-inch stick down your nose. Like, no, thank you. So we were really kind of uh, thoughtful about this. And my wife said, you know, let's do a home birth. And we found a midwife. And we were like 35 weeks. So we were really close. Found a midwife last minute. Got all this stuff ready at home. And then the day that she went in labor was on her due date. 5 p.m. She, her waters opened. She hadn't been feeling good why that day. Why don't you use the, the phrase, her waters break, broke? <clears throat> it's just less violent. It's oh, okay. less like negative. That's like, the only way I've heard waters a phrase open. prior yeah. to you reframing. Well, plus it also inspires that idea that you go and you break everybody's water when you get onto the labor and dealing. Let's get labor going and you go in there and do this invasive amniotomy, we call it, where you go in and use like a little hook and you break the water bag. Brutal. Yeah. And, you know, why, like, I don't like doing that anyways. So instead of breaking the water, the water's opened. It was a passive process. I like that. Yeah. Language is everything in this world. Yeah. I think. So water's opened at 5 p.m. Mom did a little Reiki on her. And then I asked my mom and her husband and my mother-in-law, like, I think you guys should go. I think we got a baby coming. So 
So we um, had them all leave, and then we called our friend Sarah, who's a breath worker. She's uh, the sort of front and center of effigy breath work, which if you've never tried it, I'd love to link you up with her because she's, she's got some, some mad midwifery witchy stuff in this breath work. I mean, I know there's a lot of cool breath work out there, but we chose this one because it is very grounding. And um, unless you're not pregnant, if you're not pregnant, it actually takes you into outer space in 20 minutes and it's I'm 60 in. minutes. Yeah. I you mean, had me at space. Full psychedelic experience for me and for my wife as well outside of it. Uh, with a lot of trauma release, a lot of shock. It was like a full Kundalini experience. A lot of like that puppy dog sobbing after the the breath work, like that stuff is just coming out and you're not even crying. It's just trembling out of you. I love that stuff. Powerful, powerful medicine. In pregnancy- Tell, tell us her name again so we can put it in Sarah the Sarah Charmoli. Yeah, I've got Sarah an episode Charmoli. with you. I'll send it to you because okay, she great. does a really nice job of explaining cool. it. Um, but we figured that'd be a nice way to start the labor. So we decided we'd breathe with her. So at 6 p.m., remember, water's open at 5, 6 p.m., an hour into the labor process, Sarah comes over, we start breathing. 40 minutes into that, I'm off in outer space on Neptune. And she's tapping me on the shoulder. I don't even realize that she's like, hey, I think, I think it's time. Baby's coming. So we're only an hour, 40 minutes into the, the whole labor process, let alone three days. And uh, her mid, our, our midwife, and there's a doctor that's, that's building a home birth practice who attended as an apprentice and a midwifery student. They all came up and they sat in the corner like, eyes wide, like there's this heavy tribal music playing and we're like, <gasps> I mean, intense environment. And my hands are all cramped up from the hyperoxygenation. My the toes are cramped. Yeah, 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 yeah. My mouth is all, you know, mangled. And um, 6.46, an hour 46 after the water's opened, baby's out asleep. And it, Stephanie said it was an ecstatic birth. And you've heard that term before. This was an absolutely, I wouldn't say, I don't think she would say it was pleasurable, but she used the word ecstatic, which is why I'm stealing that. And for her, it was very healing from the first birth in the hospital. We didn't even get in the tub. It was right on our bed where we probably conceived this baby, which is a beautiful kind of uh, full circling, you know? And um, the baby was asleep. Little Everly Rosa was totally asleep on her chest moments after. We got to breastfeed. We watched a movie that night. People brought us food. And uh, they had even had to wake the baby up to get the APGAR scores, which is the first scoring of sort of like, how's the baby transition? Do we need to do some, you know, little oxygen or whatever? And she was a 10 out of 10, which isn't, I've never even seen a 10 out of 10, but they gave her a 10 out of 10. And, and, um, and that, when, you, when, you, when you're at a home birth, when you really get to see that on a, on a woman's terms, it changes everything for you. So that I was already way out of the system at this point, but that was so validating as to how powerful this can be if we're just present with the process and just allow the spiritual transformation to unfold. And when it's your own wife, you get to see her in the most beautiful light possible. She's giving birth to your baby. And um, lots of tears, lots of oxytocin through both of us and the smell of a newborn baby is probably not as appealing to some people, but when it's your own baby, it's like, it has, a, it has a thing. Up. Well, there's like this sticky vernix. It's like this white, creamy stuff that's all over them. And it's like the most incredible skincare product. You just rub it all over you. But the baby has it on it as like a lubrication and sort of a skin preservation. But then the amniotic fluid has a certain smell and everything kind of just has a smell. There's, there's some blood involved. So it's a combination of all this that when it's your own baby, like you just want to be covered in it. It's this amazing experience. So... So when people are like, oh, he's a, he's a fan of home births, but like, does he really believe it? Yeah, I really believe it. I've been there. I've done it. And, and, and when you trust in the process, oftentimes things go well. 
doesn't mean you never need a doctor, never need to transfer to a hospital, but most of the time things just go well and we just have to let the universe you know the thing, answer that, the thing about that, that to thank you for sharing those sure. those stories i i just think about you know of course not being a woman so <laughs> i have no fucking idea yeah but i know when i feel safe that my entire experience is changed right right right, right. especially if i feel safe during um, a, a time in which I kind of shouldn't yeah. or have ample opportunities to not, right? right? But to me, the whole thing that you describe and you're in, plus your vision for, you know, leaving this world too, the underlying word I hear is safety. It's just safe. The woman needs to feel safe. And, you know, back to your point, maybe for some that's in hospital and for some it's elsewhere. But that's what I take away from this is like, yeah. imagine how smoothly things could go if people aren't on edge. Right. Right? And if we can reframe particularly the birth experience as not a medical emergency, but something that's totally normal and natural right. that we've been doing for fucking ever. Yeah. yeah. You know? And not right. that things didn't go wrong and won't go wrong and, and all of that. But then who's the one judging saying it's wrong, right? Like, Yeah. According I, to who? Am I God to yeah. say that there shouldn't have been this miscarriage or a baby that didn't make it or whatever. These are realities of life that humans have found ways to reconcile and face throughout time. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's actually an important point. In our efforts to reduce neonatal mortality, meaning a dead baby inside the uterus, a fetal demise, or a dead baby after birth, we've been willing to completely perverse the entire process of birth in order to make that number zero. But that's an, that's an impossibility. It's an asymptotic relationship with bad outcomes. There will never be zero bad outcomes. That's a part of being mortal, which goes back to our fear of mortality to begin with. You know, I'm never going right. to die and babies should never die. Well, actually, babies sometimes do die. And that's not because it was a failure of the medical system any more than it was a failure to keep a 95-year-old on a ventilator and continuous dialysis and, and artificially you know, elevated blood pressure medications. It's not a failure. We are mammals. We are still organisms that have to face mortality. And our inability to recognize that leads to traumatizing procedures, traumatizing exams, traumatizing language, which is fear-based because you don't want your baby to die. Sometimes babies die. That's not a, a chess piece to be used to coerce a woman to do something that she doesn't feel right her intuition isn't trying her to do. That's on you as the doctor to be okay with a person exercising their autonomy, even if it might lead to an outcome that reflects poorly on the hospital or in your practice. It's not your job to save them or their baby. It's your job to provide them guidance so that they can make a decision that feels right. And sometimes babies die. And we are just not okay with that. It's interesting because on one side you have this primordial innate value for preservation of life. Right. I mean, we see, we see a bug that's a non-threatening bug and we would go out of our way to save its life. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> you don't want it to die. Whereas other bugs like cockroaches, one might <laughs> smash. Or what I've started in is vacuuming it up. And if Allison sees me, I have to go let it loose in the yard. <laughs> which I think helps my compassion grow. Yeah. yeah. pain in the ass when it's three in the morning. Um, <laughs> But so part of it is just, yeah, we want to preserve life. We're wired that way. We want to proliferate as a species, right? Right. But then on the pathological side of that, 
perhaps there's this atheistic, egotist attachment to form. Right. Right? That's like, because I don't, if I don't believe that I'm any more than a body, then there's this whole other depth of attachment That's to right. the body. And if I right. believe that that embryo, infant, baby is only that, then that's all there is. That's, that's right? exactly right. But yeah. from a more expanded point of view, I mean, you can go out and out and out and out into the furthest depths of the cosmos with this, which I don't even know if I'm capable of doing, but maybe as far as I could go out is that there are spirits floating around and they want to come into this plane. It's just part of their mm. karmic plan. Mm -hmm. And they're zooming around, looking at all of us, picking the appropriate parents that are going to help facilitate their evolution if they can come back here again. Yeah. This is, I mean, really my, my view of it. And they also, they and God that created them also have a plan that may or may not, may or may not include that first shot yeah. coming to, into existence, right? Like we don't even know that it's not part of that soul's plan to come in and be like, oh, cool, in the uterus for a little bit. And like then, that baby without the trachea that I yeah, told you about. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. who, who am I? Who would I be to have the audacity to say it shouldn't be that way? Right. It should be the way that I think or that my genes have programmed me to believe that everything has to live and flourish. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And it's just not the way it works. It's just not the way it you works. You know, it's so, it's so cyclical. But if if you are in the limited perspective of yourself as only being this body and this is the only shot I've got, then out of that, of course, you're going to build systems that cling and cling and cling right. to the detriment of the end the end desire. Right. Even. Right? right. Now it's like this machine eating itself because we don't know that we're more and that there is more. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you just brought to mind a story I heard recently from a um Jennifer Summerfelt is a trauma therapist. I think it was, she lives up in Canada, but she told me about a, a client who, um, who, had, had, um, who had gone through a, a C-section and really felt really bad about it. And the, um, the baby, she met this baby in like a regression therapy inside the uterus and the baby pointed down to the cervix. I was like, I didn't want to go through there. She's like, well, why baby? <laughs> well, look, and it was like cobwebby and had this like, dank cellar appearance down inside the uterus. The cervix is the exit of the uterus. And she was like, oh, you came out through the abdomen because you didn't want to go through there. And then she, in the therapy, realized, oh, there was some trauma in the past. And that energetically was appearing as in her, you know, her mind's eye, these cobwebs, like as an unsafe place. So the baby didn't want to go through this place that had this energetics of trauma and decided, I'm going out that way. Like, Get me out of some other way, wow. which actually was a great wow. sort of very therapeutic for that person. And um, because we blame ourselves when we have a C-section, we blame ourselves when something bad happens. It, um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you're giving yourself too much credit. And having said that, people who come to work with me, the first thing I say is like, you are responsible for what happens with you and your baby. And that means you have to be able to surrender control and know where your decision-making is actually needed because we can't guarantee you anything. And for the things that you can control, I want you to really work on those so we can minimize the likelihood of a bad outcome happening, which goes into all the health, you know, the lifestyle stuff I've been talking about. But the number one thing to remember for anybody listening is that when you get pregnant, you have no control. 
you're on the roller coaster and the roller coaster's brake is off and we're on for a ride. (laughs) (laughs) So all that I can do is I can make sure that there's like nails on the sides of the roller coaster to make sure that the track doesn't come unloose while you're riding it. But that's the best that we can do. We're not in control of this. And the, the, this, this sense of control over nature is really, I think, misguiding us in a lot. It's also then making us regret things that we've, that we've done or feel remorse for decisions we've made. And the only things you can control are really how healthy is your soil before you get pregnant, through the pregnancy, into the postpartum, on a physical, etheric, astral, and spiritual or eye level, consciousness level. And that's it. That's what you can control. So let's work on those things. Let's minimize the likelihood of a bad outcome. And let's also be prepared for the reality that sometimes childbirth is just dangerous. And safety, let's throw that. Let's say, let's throw should out the window. Let's throw permission out the window. Let's throw allow out the window because you're the one that's in charge and you've got full ownership over the outcome. That's the person that I work with. And that's not everybody. Awesome. Thank you for all of that. Yeah, man. I got another question for you and then we'll wrap it up. Who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work you'd like to share with us? Wow, man. Um, Richard Feynman was the first hero of mine. Um, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman was a book that I just randomly stumbled upon in the library. And he was on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the only people to ever see a nuclear blast go off very early days of developing the nuclear technology. And he was also a a seeker. He was a questioner, even though he was like one of the world's leading theoretical physicists. He was just constantly curious. And I really, really love that. And if you read that book, he was like a drummer in Carnival. Really? Yeah, really, really, uh, really, really um, an interesting guy. You'd love that book. He's he's like a polymath in in so many regards. Sort of like a a modern day Renaissance man. Um, The second would be, I think, Paul and Angie Czech have been extremely, and Penny Czech, the, the Czech family has been a great teacher of mine because there's all these gurus out there, but I don't find that a lot of people who are talking about the right way to be are actually practicing it. And I've learned that through the Czech family, that they really, really believe and practice what they preach. And it may not be right for everybody. It's not even right for me in, in many regards, but in most, most of the time when I go there, I leave with something realizing that like, wow, like this is what it means to live the life that you're actually guiding people down yourselves. Those are two that come to mind. The third and the most important is actually my wife. Uh, My wife embodies um, somebody who really knows who she is and is not afraid to be who she is and who shows up for people in service to people without losing track of who she is and why why she's here. And the amount of emotional intelligence that she brings into our relationship is unparalleled to any relationship I've ever had. We met when we were 15, actually. We started dating when we were 15. And then we split up when I was in med school. And the stars brought us back together. And we got married and now have two kids. And we're very much in love. But the the way she shows up to life and is able to just sit in silence, to contemplate, is very, very different from me, as you can imagine. I'm very go, go, go. And she is very much the yin. I'm the yang. She's the yin. And the amount of um, intuition she brings into our life is, is, a, is a, an incredible guidepost for me. And I don't think I could possibly be anywhere that I've gone without her. I know the feeling, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure been, you do. I've never been asked that question of the three people, but I was like, oh, when you said it, I was like, oh, that would definitely come out of my mouth. At least I would hope. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's yeah. an incredible gift to be in alignment. You know, it's just so um, makes your life so rich. It does. You know, to be able to be in a relationship with someone that you that you view in that way. Yeah, and and from a relationship standpoint, like perfection's never the goal. Like a perfect relationship is one where I can be perfectly imperfect, flaws and all, and just let them hang out, and for her to just accept me and love me through that, and and vice versa. And I think she does that better than I do for her. And it's, so it's a constant exercise for me to remember that like perfection is not the goal. And to love somebody unconditionally is to love them and allow them to express those flaws, perhaps even work on those flaws without the goal of perfection, but, but with the goal of being able to be seen and witnessed through the pain, the joy, the sadness, the ups and downs and everything in between. And I think we all need that in our lives, especially us men who are holding everything very close to our heart, not willing to open up. She's definitely been the person who I cry with, I get mad with, I get happy with, all very unapologetically. And that's been very, very helpful to me as a man. It's funny you say that because I, I, I've got to be like in such deep shit before I'll ask for help. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'll just, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's a male thing or what, but I'll just like hold it together, hold it together, hold it together. And there's this pressure cooker of just life happening, you know? And then once it gets to a certain point, I'm yeah. just like, okay, honey, like I got to share this, you know, which was the day yesterday. And yeah, um, yeah and it got really good, insightful, practical yeah. advice. And I was just thinking, oh, thank God. Right. If I would have figured this out on my own, I probably would have done something really stupid. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I ended up doing what I wanted to do, but I, I needed a sounding board that yeah. was that was unattached and had some wisdom and intuition yeah. online, yeah. right? And I go, am I feeling into this right? Well, let's look at all sides of it and see, and then we'll proceed. And I proceeded and it was like, bam, we nailed it. Yeah. It was such a great decision. I mean, not a huge decision in the great scheme of things in life, but... A decision that was like a $25,000 decision. <laughs> Pretty big in that realm, in the 3D realm. So I was like, oh, thank God for the wifey, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for for honoring me with your time. I know you're very busy and you've got a lot of deep thoughts. And I'm just glad to spend some time with you today. Likewise. Thanks for joining me, man. Yeah. That's it, and that's all, folks. That brings another episode of The Lifestylist to a close. Next week's episode is number 422. It's called Stem Cell and Laser Treatments for Hearing Loss and Tinnitus with Dr. John Lawrence. And that show next week, folks, is going to be a doozy because it will be a part of my entire experience of going to Dr. John's clinic in Sarasota, Florida. Advancedrejuvenation.us, by the way, is where you'll find them and actually getting this treatment done on myself. So as I record this, I've not yet undergone the treatment, but by the time you hear this, it will have happened. So wish me luck in reverse, I guess you could say, but I'm really looking forward to not only experiencing his clinic, but also that particular treatment. Because as I speak into this microphone right now, my left ear is ringing like someone has a freaking whistle inside of my skull. And it's been that way for many years. Not to mention, uh, I find myself walking around the house saying, what? What? A lot because I'm half deaf in my left ear. So stay tuned for not only that episode, but for the results that uh, I hope will follow. And remember, if you were intrigued by Nathan's approach to birth in this episode and are pregnant or soon planning to make babies, you can find out more about working with him directly at lukestory.com slash beloved holistics. 
You can also use the code Luke100 there, and he's going to give you 100 bucks off his services, which is pretty cool. You can also find that link in the show notes on most podcast apps. All right, my friends, that's it. I'm Audi. I'll be back next week with Dr. John Lawrence. Thank you.